0: He never quite got the attention I thought he deserved. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to sneeze for him. <laughs> no problem. I can feel it coming. Okay. I'll try to make it through.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and tonight you're in for a treat, as I'm about to do a totally random drawing from a group of over a hundred talented podcasters to find out who will be my co-host for tonight. Let's see. And the name is... Alec Pridgen.
0: What are the odds? It's amazing.
1: Yeah, how about that? I just so happen to draw the same co-host I have on every show. Huh? That's a random chance for you.
0: Yeah, I figured it'd be me or Mark Marin. So,
1: <laughs> how's it going tonight, Al?
0: Good. How's it going with you?
1: It's going all right. Uh, you got your first vaccination shot this week, right? I am. I am mostly protected now. Yep, yep. And I got my second on Friday, actually. So uh, we are swiftly approaching. I think the days when we may be able to actually watch shows together again.
0: What a crazy time that was, so long ago. I, it's been a year. I know, yeah.
1: It's it's amazing to think of that, that we've gone through, I think, what's it, a whole additional series and part of a new one.
0: Yeah, because all of Wrestle War, right?
1: Yeah, all of Wrestle War, and a, a couple special episodes, and then a good chunk of Slamboree between <laughs> between seeing each other. So uh, that's, that's kind of amazing. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to being able to actually watch a show in person with you again. Mm-hmm. We can watch together as opposed to using watch together.
0: Yes. Let's <laughs> not worry about lag when we're in the same room.
1: Yes, yes. It'll be better recording as well. For sure. Yes, a PSA from Let's Go to the Ring to everybody. Please, please, please get your vaccinations uh, when they're available for you. And uh, do not hold back from that. Let's let's all get vaccinated so we can end this thing and get back to our normal lives.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to see people complaining about how they can't do something, and then go, well, have you got your shot?
1: Well, they'll know. Yeah, yeah. So, let's go to the vaccination site. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Tonight, we're taking a look at Slamboree 1997, The Tradition Continues. This is neither a Hall of Fame show, nor a Battle Bowl show, so I'm pretty sure WCW doesn't know what the word tradition actually means.
0: (laughs) You would think a company brewed in such actual tradition would know what it means, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. The WWE Network has now moved over to the Peacock streaming service, so just a note that we're going to be covering the Peacock version of these shows, if that matters, as that's the most easily accessible version for current wrestling viewers. Um, Al, I think you've used the service a bit more than me at this point. Do you have any thoughts on it in general so far?
0: Uh, It tends to work pretty well. There's a couple little things they don't have that most of the ones do. Like, for example, Netflix, you click on your button, go to your queue, and everything you've selected it all goes there. Mm-hmm. You know, Disney has that. Amazon Prime's got that. You can add stuff on Peacock, but then there's no, like, master list. I can, at least not that I can find yet. Oh, okay. So, I mean, obviously, if you know something I'm going to watch, you can type it in and find it. But it's it's weird. There's, like, one simple thing, like, a a list or a queue is not on there. But otherwise, yeah, it's fine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's funny to see how they list the pay-per-views as seasons.
1: Yes, yes, like, it is. This that, is like the, season
0: five, and then there's one episode, which is the only one.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of slotted in their existing setup rather than having a setup custom built for it now. Correct. But it, it does work. Yeah, sure. I, I found it interesting. We we both actually have ended up right now, because of the special deal, at least, that they had for it um, with the ad-supported version. And I've, I found those actually relatively non-intrusive at this point. I don't know if you agree on that, but yeah. they like did a good job, I thought of, at least on the shows I've watched so far, of slotting them actually in between the matches.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Rather than having them actually interrupt anything. So that was kind of a nice uh, touch. I hope that that's something they've really manually decided to do and not just look.
0: <laughs> yeah. I will say what is funny when I was rewatching this to get my notes... They go to cut to the preview for the American Bash. I know it happened for you as well, but when it does that, it cut, that's where they, when the ad breaks is.
1: Yes. Yeah, that was, it threw me completely out I, because I, I, I got like a ad for vitamins for, for women or yeah. something like that. And I'm like, that's not what Tony threw to, is it? And then I realized, oh, wait, no, it's a peacock ad. <laughs> they have some weird show, but that would be for you up there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's a move that at least has some potential for positivity, and definitely you get a lot more than just the WWE Network for your money now, so that's kind of a neat Mm -hmm. touch. The only thing I'm finding I'm missing right now is the chapter selections. Yes. Chapter is not the right word, but like being able to go through and and select, I want to see this match or see this promo.
0: Yeah, the the, the WWE Network was set up where you could select matches Mm -hmm. and just go right to them where this one that's where the ad mostly where the ad breaks are like you were saying which is helpful yes <laughs> yes but if you want to look for a certain match yeah or search by a certain wrestler you can't do that at least not yet right we'll see if they add that or if, if they're not blind to it at all
1: yeah maybe that's something that they could do in a season instead of having it be you know a season with with only one thing in there you could do a season with each match recorded as its episode or something that would be good yeah Slampery 1997 was held on May 18th, 1997 at the Independence Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina in front of 9,643 fans recorded as sold out. That's about 1,400 more than Starcade 1993 in the same arena, so well done. It earned 165,000 pay-per-view buys. Aside from Starcade 1997 and Halloween Havoc 1997, most of the year hovered between 120,000 and 250,000, so that's solidly in the middle of the range for WCW's 1997. There were two dark matches before the show. Yuji Nagata defeated Pat Tanaka, and The Public Enemy defeated Harlem Heat. I know you're. Probably disappointed that we missed the latter, Al. Yes, I am. But after the last show, I'm very happy to see less matches on this show and less tag matches in particular. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know, I can see that.
1: <laughs> I will say what's funny I was
0: reading about this, and so we we're doing all this prep work for the show, and you know, you didn't got us in the first match on the dark matches, mm-hmm. and he pops up my actual news feed, because he's still wrestling in New Japan. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing he was fairly, fairly young here because it's 24 years later and he's still actively wrestling with the company. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. I just, I just read about him and he's in the news now.
1: Weird coincidences. Mm-hmm. Let's go, as is traditional, to the ring. These three are all pros. Two are on opposite ends of the fierce Green Bay Chicago rivalry. Off the gridiron and into the ring, one will gain the other's respect in the WCW's black and blue division.
2: WCW or NWO. Piper is a true icon in the sport. The nature boy has defined excellence in world championship wrestling. Wild card Kevin Green will aid in carrying the rich WCW tradition. Be outside and six have hurled a barrage of insults in the direction of the veterans. The NWO is on a campaign to replace honor with disgrace. This triple threat will engage forces as WCW faces the NWO at Slam
1: that, that second shocked me there for a second. <laughs> We open with a video package going over the inclusion of three football players in tonight's proceedings, though one Mongo McMichael is, of course, a regular WCW performer now. The narrator says that Mongo or Reggie White will gain the other's respect in the WCW's black and blue division.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what, what division is that exactly?
1: Right, but like, one stupid name for the division, apparently, and two... Even in their own narration, they are now calling it the WCW. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The rest of the package goes over the WCW versus NWO six-man tag main event. Flair, Piper, and Kevin Green, who apparently has no problem teaming up with Flair, the man who bribed Green's best bud, Mongo, to turn on him last year, are team WCW. Green has a sting-level forgiving spirit slash gullibility, I guess. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) They'll face NWO members Nash, Hall, and Six. It's kind of sad that WCW apparently can't even find three actual regular roster wrestlers to represent it.
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of people missing from the show, as we'll go over. Some I know, like I know why Sting's not here. We're in the build to Stark in 97, where he's coming and going. Yes. But I'm kind of curious, I meant to look up why Lex Luger's
1: not on the show. He, he is on the show, Al. Oh. <laughs> is he? <laughs> Remember, the giant Giant has a t-shirt. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yes. if that's the case of four horsemen are all over this show. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they kind of are. <laughs> yes, also true, but even more than normal. Yeah. yeah. As an ungodly amount of fireworks go off, host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show alongside co-host Bobby the Brain Heenan and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. I'm pretty sure that WCW would still be around today if it trimmed the pyro budget. <laughs> that would definitely have helped, yes. Tony builds up WCW battling for a tradition against the NWO. Tony asks Heenan about Mongo versus Reggie White, and Heenan warns White that the ring is a whole different field than he's played on before, and Mongo knows it well. Tony builds up that Flair is returning from injury for the WCW versus NWO match, and Dusty says you should never toss tradition out of window, and ask if the seeping sewage of the NWO will be stopped tonight. Harsh words from Dusty Rhodes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> lovely, lovely, or in this case, smelly visual.
2: <laughs> yes. Let's go to the ring, the opening bout this week on Slamberine!
0: Wait, did he say this week?
1: Yes, he did. It's so code in his brain from working nitros. <laughs> from, from nitros, yeah. Or maybe maybe he saw in the future and saw that Peacock would have them as seasons. Ah. And he thinks that it's a weekly show. <laughs> I mean, it's, that makes as much
0: sense as anything else we're going to say. <laughs>
1: Our first match is Steven Regal versus Ultimo Dragon with Sonny Ono for Dragon's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is Mark Curtis.
0: Regal, a while back, lost the TV title to Prince Iakea. Following that, Regal, trying to get his title back, attacks Iakea, which happened to be before one of his matches. We're supposed to defend the title against Ultimo Dragon. Which, they mentioned in commentary, might be a, a factor in the way Dragon won the title since his opponent was injured. Right. The other aspect is there's been this subtle but slow-rising tension between Dragon and his manager, given that Dragon's leaning more towards being a good guy, and obviously, Sonny Uno, I think has never been a face in wrestling, at least
1: not as far as I'm aware of. He is he is my personal hero for introducing the selfie, but...
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just don't know if he's ever allowed to be a good guy in wrestling, unfortunately, at this period in
2: time.
1: Yeah. Regal makes his entrance to Jeremiah Clark's 1700s Prince of Denmark's March, one of the most famous trumpet voluntaries in the world, even if I did forget its name and blow an hour of working on show notes figuring that out. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Thanks very much, Regal. (laughs) It actually has an interesting history, including being used by the BBC during broadcast to Nazi-occupied Denmark during World War II. It became kind of a symbol of resisting the Nazis as a result. Oh. Of course, to us Americans, it I guess it just sounds like snooty trumpet music, so we slapped it on a British heel to show how snobby he was. Yes. As he enters, Tony tells us that Regal no longer wishes to be called Lord Stephen Regal, because being a noble is a given, apparently. So the idea is that he's so arrogant that he doesn't want to wave his lordliness in everyone's face? Huh? Yeah, that's kind but- of interesting logic there. I also don't like the new coat. It looks like he cut up a shower curtain.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can see that.
1: Ultimo Dragon, miscalled as the ultimate dragon.
0: <sighs> and they do it the whole, whole match
1: Constantly, yeah. Yeah. Has an awesome silver and black outfit. He is second only to Liger for awesome ring attire, I think. Mm-hmm. He seems annoyed by Ono, and he begrudgingly allows a selfie like a tired movie star being pestered by an annoying fan when he's trying to remain incognito.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, he has the celebrity at an airport at 4 a.m.
1: Yes. Yeah. He also sells being momentarily blinded by the camera's flash, which got me. Though I'm not actually sure there was a camera flash. I think the flash that we see may actually have been his pyro still going off. <laughs> he has a little trouble getting his cape off today. He's like, oh, scrappling yeah, yeah. at it a bit. <laughs> Mike Tanay joins the announced team for the match, rapid counter wrestling until Regal sneaks in a kick during a test of strength and flips Dragon for a couple one counts. Tanay mentions that Dusty was one of the greatest TV champs. Oh hush, Dusty says bashfully,
0: <laughs> Dusty is known for his shyness, that's true,
1: yeah, he's the most humble shy and and not at all talkative person no. it was It was really funny, yeah. Regal and Dragon trade nasty holds, but Regal hits a gut-wrench tilt-a-whirl slam for two. Dragon shoulder block for two, and he earns a couple two-counts with a headlock takeover, though Regal flips him over for one. Rare spot as Regal stops in his tracks on a whip. When do you ever see that?
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: They fight in the corner, and Dragon perplexes Regal with a handstand on the turnbuckle, then hits amazing hard kicks. Mm-hmm. Heenan asks, when do you ever see a man dressed as a rooster standing on his head on the top rope? <laughs> uh, last Wednesday? <laughs> He'd know, being Red Rooster's manager in the WWF.
0: <laughs> That's true, yeah.
1: Dragon's single-leg crab, neckbreaker, and figure four necklock, but Regal stomps him hard. Dragon rolls out, but Regal brings him back in with a suplex for two. Dragon hits a sunset flip for one. Regal nearly gets the Regal stretch, but Dragon lunges for the ropes. Regal slaps him, so Dragon takes him down and aggressively slaps him back, then puts on a cross-arm breaker. Heenan advises Regal to bite Dragon. That <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Regal tries the Regal stretch again, but Dragon resists, so Regal uses a bow and arrow, then a headlock, and Dragon does bite Regal. Well, he was billed as Bruce Lee's final student, after all. Yeah, sure. <laughs> nasty kicks by dragon and a crazy bridging spider stf and the fans actually chant for regal yeah it's really surprising i think Heenan actually says something like he he hears them chant regal's name all the time but normally it's accompanied by a few more words yes that
0: is what he says <laughs> yes
1: Ono oh amusingly shields his ears <laughs> regal tries a back body drop but dragon flips over him lands on his feet and drop kicks him out through the ropes Ono lands some kicks, but Dragon goes out and throws Regal in, then glares at Ono, who looks shocked. Back in, Dragon hits a handspring elbow, then a super hurricanrana for two and a half. Regal dodges a moonsault, but Dragon escapes a regal stretch again. Dragon counters a double-arm suplex into a hurricanrana for two in a really amazing spot.
0: Yeah, the timing on that is definitely really nice.
1: Yeah, and, and just like... Not the one I would have expected to be countered into that. The double arm ver- variation is... It seems like it shouldn't lead you there, but it does.
0: Yeah, your, your arm positioning seems like it'd be harder to do that. Yeah. Because yeah. loosen your arms as part of that, yeah.
1: Regal dodges a single leg takedown and rolls Dragon up for two. Dragon's spinning wheel kick, and he tries a La Maestral cradle, but they hit the ropes. quebrada by Dragon, but he's too tired to cover. They trade suplex attempts, but Dragon shifts his weight to send Regal through the ropes. Dragon tries a crossbody, but Regal just walks away <laughs> and <laughs> lets him splat. <laughs> he looks extremely satisfied with himself for doing that, too. Oh, yes. Dragon whips Regal to the barricade and hits the acai moonsault. Dragon gets back in, but Ono lands kicks on Regal. Dragon goes out and stops that and goes to get back in but Ono spin kicks him. It's a bit of a weird spot. Ono was trying a spin kick when Dragon first interrupted, but just stopped. So I kind of wonder if that was supposed to be an accidental hit, but since they mistimed it or were out of position or something, Mm -hmm. Ono just made it intentional.
0: Uh, Yeah, that one's tricky, because, yeah, I think the idea was that he was going for a spin kick on Regal, and that's when Dragon came in. Mm -hmm. So then when he rejected that's when he just outward kicks dragon himself. That's how I read that one.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell if he was supposed to actually hit him with that initial spin kick, and they just I I felt like either Ono was maybe too close, and knew he wasn't going to get the hit, so he stopped. But I could also see that just being like, no, he actually interrupted, and it it like works the way that they did it.
0: Yeah. Whatever the actual reason, I think they're going for the idea that he interrupts it.
1: Yeah. And that annoys Ono one last
0: last time to minute you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Dragon turns to confront Ono, but Regal kicks Dragon, rolls him in, and hits a reverse suplex, then slaps on the Regal stretch for the submission victory. We cut outside, where Ono tells us that he makes champions and he destroys them, and he says that Dragon lost respect for him. If the spin kick spot was botched to make it more intentional than intended, that's actually a pretty good cover. Mm-hmm. Regal stomps Dragon and leaves. As the commentators discuss Ono's betrayal, Heenan's been trying to sell this as, uh, "Oh, Ono, it was an accident. He didn't mean to hit him." But during the replays, he finally agrees Ono did it on purpose. Clearly,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Thoughts on this one?
0: That was a very strong technical match. Mm-hmm. They, they highlight during commentary today, especially that maybe you don't think of this from Dragon, because there's a tendency with high flyers to just to think of them sort of in a bubble like that that's like that's all they do right like all they can do is flips and spins but that's obviously not true we've seen really good technical wrestling from like liger in the last show with him and um yep conan for instance ray um i'm pretty sure the the when we have here has some nice moments as well mm-hmm. obviously with dragon as well he's working with regal so that definitely helps yes regal's really good at selling all the offense like death <laughs> yeah, and also keeping the pace going too. That's a does a really tricky balance because some guys, some guys don't sell enough, and they just kind sort of pop back up for spots to keep the pacing going. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people, they tend to sell like death, and then it's slowing down. Like yeah, like you're probably to keep picking the back up again, and right? Doesn't quite go the right way.
1: Yeah, Regal has a very good balance between making the moves look like they hurt. And did something important, while also, like you said, keeping everything moving. Mm-hmm. He'll sell it very visibly, and his, his excellent facial expressions definitely help. Yeah. But he'll sell it very visibly, but he'll still get back up relatively quickly.
0: Yeah. Everything was very smooth here. Yes. I don't know how much they've worked together, Regal and Dragon, that is. If this is their first time wrestling, I, I, I doubt at this point. It doesn't show. They have a really good chemistry. It seems very polished. Yeah, exactly. Because even with wrestlers that are just really good, the first time match with someone, you'll catch little things here and there. Mm-hmm. Even like the greatest, you know, Randy Savage or Steamboat match, if you see the first one for the second one, you'll see the difference from the second one, for
1: sure. Do you think that'll be the same when we get to the DDP-Randy Savage feud, or will their combined obsessiveness in plotting out every single thing lead to like a perfect first match?
0: Ooh, that's tricky. <laughs> I, I, it might be that it might be that way, yeah. <laughs> at, at most, you'll, you might see them planning spots based on how well the crowd reacted to the previous match. True, true. Do more of A and less of B, example. But yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: quality wise, yeah, and I'm sure it's good from the beginning. <laughs> As we, we were just discussing, the turn of the end is a little confusing the way it plays out, but ultimately it works. I think it's good that it helps Dragon separate from Ono. And sets up later stuff we're going to see.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: also gives him a good excuse for losing the title.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: If you think about it, Dragon's had a really up and down, like, i to say, eight, eight to nine months now. Yeah. Because if you recall, at the end of 1996, he won
1: Super J-Cup. With the, with the amazing number of belts. Yes.
0: All eight belts.
1: <laughs> Literally too many belts for him to carry. Correct. <laughs> Goes to WSW, wins the Cruiserweight
0: title off D. Malenko in that really good match. That was excellent. But then, unfortunately, a little bit later, it loses
1: all of those belts.
0: Yes. <laughs> then it sort of recovers and gets this belt, and then loses it
1: again. <laughs> kind of a up-and-down year for you there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's only like four people that ever held the Super Jake crown, so no matter how long you hold it, you're in a steam company, but yeah. Right. <laughs> it's got to be weird the next day, like, where are my belts at? Yes.
1: <laughs> But then you go to the airport and you're like, "Oh my gosh, my arms feel so much better
0: yeah i don't have I don't have two carry carry-ons from my my title belts, <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> that had to be interesting going through airport security,
0: yeah, <laughs> for sure,
1: yeah, I thought this was a terrific high energy, complex match to open the show. Dragon and Regal went at it with some hard strikes, particularly Dragon's masterful and sharp kicks. And some great mat wrestling and hold exchanges, with some really creative and surprising counters. Mix in some really nice high-flying moves by Dragon, and Regal's usual terrific character work. And a nice storyline of Regal repeatedly looking for the Regal stretch, but Dragon repeatedly escaping. And this was great. Mm -hmm. The heel-face dynamic seemed a little bit lost on the crowd, I will say. Yes. They very quickly got behind Regal, despite the story of the match being about Dragon breaking from his heelish manager, Ono, mm-hmm. and insisting on winning the right way. The ending also seemed like maybe slightly botched, but it works and it does not spoil a terrific match and an exceptional opener.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure.
1: This is up there with some of the best opening matches we've seen. i say so we've
0: had, what, two shows where Dragon opens a show now?
1: Well, see, he was the open on 96, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, I I always get mixed up as whether it was his match or Rey Mysterio's match, but Mysterio was third, I think, on that one. I believe so. I really don't want to take those kicks. Those sounded pretty... Oh, no, gal. I was looking to see, because I know the slap your thigh trick that everybody does, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't see him doing that. That that worried me, because that means mm-hmm. that they're legit. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, at least with those, generally you do the slap-the-thigh thing when you're doing, like, face kicks. Right. Whereas the back, I mean, not that I wouldn't kick kicked in the back, obviously, but at least that's a bigger spread-out area. It
1: spreads the force. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so there they were worse places to be kicked, obviously. Yes. Good thing. <laughs> Dragon is now separated from Sunny Ono, which leads to the Great American Bash, where Sunny Ono brings out his new protege to fight him. Psychosis. That was a left turn. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Although it kind of makes sense if you think about it because Ultimo Dragon's whole thing is that he's a Japanese wrestler that works almost exclusively in Mexico. That's true.
1: And they bring psychosis. That's true. So, yeah, yeah. that's just not who you would have expected at first given Ono's strong association with Japanese pro wrestling yeah. in WCW to this point.
0: I <laughs> yeah, believe if he could have brought in the Liger to Challenge, that would have been amazing. Oh. <sighs> Take nothing away from psychosis, but yeah. Yeah. Dragon and Liger on view would be great. We get them separately and never together, as far as I know.
1: Yeah, it'd be a great match and a terrific costume challenge. <laughs> oh, that would be good, yeah. <laughs> we go right back to the ring for our second match, which is Luna Vashon versus Medusa in a ladies grudge match. The referee for this one is Mickey J.
0: So famously, back in 1995, Medusa left the WWF when they wouldn't push their women's division, which led to WCW's arguably most famous moment on Nitro, at least for quite a while. It's it's right up there. Yes. It makes all the highlight package talk about crazy things you didn't expect to happen on Nitro, or shows up with her pink belt and drops it in the trash can live on the air. So of course, she comes to WCW when they don't have a women's division. Yes. Even once they get one, they don't really promote it.
1: Yeah, they, they have a decent little run of them when they're doing the title tournament, they have a decent little run with it, but then yeah. it kind of starts to fade away pretty fast after that.
0: Isn't um Kira Hokuto in that tournament twice?
1: Yes. She is in there under two different gimmicks. She loses once and then she wins the tournament.
0: That's right. <laughs> so even then, they're kind of taking shortcuts.
1: Yes. And and it's it's basically a tournament. The WCW women's division, I believe, is Medusa. And then it's just her and a whole bunch of wrestlers from various Japanese promotions.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because even, even at that point, Luna's not involved.
1: Yes. I don't know if she's in
0: WDF at that point or just around some miles, but yeah, she's not involved in any of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so finally, when they create a women's title, they give it to Akira Hokuto and not Medusa, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Even if you can argue, and rightfully so, that WDF didn't promote the women's vision at least long term. Putting Medusa as the face of it, as the champion for most of that time, worked as well as it was going to. Yeah. So it's kind of weird
1: to not have her do that. I don't mind them necessarily having Hokuto win the tournament, but I think they should have fairly sharpish after that built to you know have one or two more matches between them and then Medusa takes the title. Mm-hmm. Like having an inversion of expectations on the tournament itself works. Yeah. But sure. unfortunately, it kind of became oh we're not doing anything with this. Yeah. Because she doesn't work for us.
0: <laughs> yes. Because as we cover up on the nineteen ninety six show again, going after Dragon, the WF Light Heavyweight title at that point ends yes. up in in Japan because they make it for another promotion for like cross promotional matches on like Mexican tours or something like that. Yeah. And then into Japan all like people really care about it. That's kinda of happened to their, their title. I'm curious if I like, found New Japan programming. Is that all over the show, or is that even ignored there, too? That'd
1: be interesting to find out, yeah. Yeah.
0: Is she like a proud champion over Japan and just never makes it here or not? <laughs> but so, Hougatou was not on this show. So instead, we have Luna Vachon, who, in storyline, came to WCW, because she had a long-running grudge in different promotions, mostly WDF, with the Medusa, and she interfered in the title match we produced to try to win the title from Hokuto, so that's why there's a grudge between the two of them.
1: Okay. Vashon is billed as from the other side of darkness. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Is it like thing from the dark side of the moon? Probably, probably somewhere around there, yeah. Seems like they share a zip code. Yeah, I think so. She's got a good evil supervillainous look. Tony welcomes Stagger Lee Marshall to join commentary for the match, so we've got Tony and Tony again. <laughs> it's great,
0: I knew either you'd make the joke or I would make that joke, so yes, <laughs> you go first.
1: Marshall builds up Luna's relation to Mad Dog and Butcher Vashans, saying that she comes by her mean streak, honestly. Medusa dresses like she's on American gladiators, yeah. I do rather like the main guitar riff in her entrance music. Apparently, she's claiming to have beaten women's champion Akira Hokuto in Japan, but Ono has claimed the match never took place and Hokuto still has the belt. Has anyone tried, I don't know, calling the organization in Japan and asking for a tape? (laughs) Yeah. Seems like something you could do. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Vashon slaps Medusa hard and hurls her around the ring earning Alexa Luger cells from Medusa. <laughs> Medusa fights back, but Vashon rakes her eyes, chokes her, and makes excellent crazy faces. Marshall lists off star female athletes these two aspire to match, and Heenan chimes in with the name of a random Milwaukee bowler. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was good, yeah.
1: Medusa howls, charges, and hits a spin kick, but Vashon takes her down and aggressively massages her belly? Yeah. W- weird spot. <laughs> she's
0: like trying to like? like
1: trying to squeeze her kidney or something? I'm not really she's sure. She's checking if she has appendicitis. <laughs>
0: yeah, a bet, yeah. It's like, that's what it looks like. It does, yeah.
1: Vashon suplex for one, but Medusa bridges out. Medusa hits screaming corner splashes and a monster lariat, sending Vashon butt over tea kettle. <laughs> Vashon lands right on the back of her neck. Ow! <laughs> oh, yeah. That gets two. Medusa kicks and a sunset flip, but Vachon kneels on top for two, but pulls at Medusa's hair, so Jay counts for a break instead. Tony points out that might have been it if Vachon hadn't done that. Medusa rolls it over for two, but eats a spinning face buster and neck breaker. Medusa dodges a top rope splash and hits a beautiful bridging German suplex for the three count and the win. Medusa takes off the American flag part of her top, thankfully there's another top beneath, mm-hmm. and swings it around to celebrate. The replay show Vachon indeed landed right on her neck on that lariat. Oh yeah. That must have hurt like hell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> the bridging German suplex was astoundingly beautiful, though. Yes. Great like arc on it. Thoughts on this one?
0: I thought this was, this was quite good. Um, one thing that Heenan really points out in commentary, I think it's Heenan, uh, is that there's never really any break spots in this match other than the sort of weird side hold there. <laughs> Even if there's a shorter match, they pace it really well. They just sort of keep going and fighting through everything. They get a lot in to the time they're given, which is nice. Because mm-hmm. sadly, at this point, I think they know you get one, you, you maybe get one match and the show if you're lucky, you get through everything you're doing tonight or never again. Basically. yes yeah as you noted medusa is very loud in this match
1: oh my gosh
0: <laughs> yes i've never heard her like this it's almost like they knew lex is officially on this show and we need a large blonde person to be screaming with every move
1: so That's i guess true. medusa fills the bill yeah i don't remember her ever doing it like that but no yeah she she is whether she's taking moves or or delivering them screaming at the top of her lungs it's 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 amazing. Yes. My biggest takeaway from this match is it's not like the greatest
0: match you're ever going to see, but it's well executed. It's as in it's quickly paced
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and it all works. So why isn't there more of this? Yeah, exactly. It seems like we've had that so far with the women's matches. Whenever we've had one, it's been at at worst entirely satisfying. Yeah. So I, I don't get why this is such a rare occurrence in WCW. They've got talented performers that they can bring in, even if they don't have them as regulars. They've got talented performers that they can bring in yeah, that put on more than acceptable matches, so do it more often. Exactly, yeah. There's a few weird spots here and there, like the belly press, Mm -hmm. but this was quite a fun, fast-paced match with some good hard strikes, a few good slams, and some nice story beats with Vashon getting too mad at Medusa to think straight and screwing up her chance to win. At only five minutes, I do feel like for me, it feels like it's a bit in fast forward at points. Yeah, it's moving at a high pace, less because the action needs to move at a high pace, and more because the clock is ticking.
0: Yeah, that that that's my takeaway from this as well.
1: Yeah, still, they did what they could with the time they had, and I really enjoyed it. And yeah, like we said, there there needs to be more of this on mm-hmm. WCW shows, and it's a a massive shame that there is not. Yes,
0: so we'll get. One last shot against Kira Hukato, which took place at the American Bash, the next show. And to get that, she had to put her career on the line. Okay. I also mention this until it never come up on the actual shows we we're going to cover. Okay. And this is about the right time anyways. Just a little while before this show takes place. They began a four-woman tournament on one episode of Nitro, the March 31st episode of Wikipedia. Okay. To create the first WCW Women's Cruiserweight Championship. Okay. Which is an even more forgotten title than the sadly, the
1: women's championship in <laughs> yes. WCW. Because I don't think that one ever actually makes a pay-per-view, right? It does not.
0: <laughs> no, basically, they have one match on Nitro to they say, hey, we're doing a tournament. And then the rest of the matches all take place in the main event. Did they somehow manage to have uh, Kira Hokuto play three different wrestlers at that one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's no one I think we've actually seen before. Basically, this title was made as a cross motion with a company in Japan called Gaia, which is a great name for a wrestling company. It is. Yeah, apparently, this cruiserweight for the women's division is 130 pounds. The Southern Medusa was just too big and tall to qualify for that. <laughs> kind of shame you going to get a second shot at a belt that they wouldn't give her. Yeah. It basically lasted about a year, again, almost entirely in Japan. I think maybe the title was seen on TV once. I remember seeing on a Ram night show before we started the podcast and thinking, I'm not aware of this belt even existing. And I'm like, oh, that's why.
1: Considering that we're aware of the Western States Heritage title, that's a major insult. Exactly, yeah. We go to the stage where Mean Gene Okerlund shills the hotline and claims someone might be leaving WCW. 1-900-909-9900. The NWO theme, Randy Savage version, interrupts. And Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth come out to run Gene off. NWO theme count, one. Savage takes his microphone, and they come down to the ring as Dusty says that Savage is about to filibuster, and Diamond Dallas Page is probably on Savage's mind. Savage says the center of the universe is the Outsiders plus six, the Wolf Pack, and Hogan, Bagwell, Norton, and Bischoff. The crowd chants for DDP, and Savage says he's not part of the center. He says DDP doesn't want to feel the madness or have any part of the Macho Man. DDP comes charging through the crowd with a badly bent crutch in his hand and just about reaches the ring before Macho spots him and scampers. DDP gets in the ring as Bischoff comes out to bring out more NWO guys, and the NWO gathers on the ramp. DDP takes up Savage's microphone. Page asks Savage where he's going. Page thought he wanted to feel the madness. What's the deal? Hogan isn't here to ambush Paige, so Savage doesn't want to feel the madness now. Paige says, he gets it. Savage has a previous engagement to wash Hogan's car and kiss his ass. <laughs> Still get the order backwards. <laughs> yeah. Actually, kind of do get the order backwards. It'd be a little more pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, true. Yeah. Been on the car, I guess. Savage tries to sell that he isn't bothered, but the grin looks false. Savage tells the others to back off to the sides and goes totally red as he tells Bischoff to get out of his way. Savage strides to the ring. Heenan says Savage is doing the wrong thing, and he should make Paige fight Savage's way, not play Paige's game, but quickly notes he's not sticking up for the NWO. (laughs) Tony says he certainly is, and Heenan says he's a broadcast journalist and has freedom of speech. (laughs) Savage in, and Paige beats the crap out of him with the crutch. Bagwell in, and he's hit, too. Vincent in, and Paige breaks the crutch on him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ow! <laughs> Bischoff in, and Paige smacks him with the much smaller crutch, but Norton finally gets in to slug him in the back. Paige collapses, and Norton rips Paige's shirt off to reveal his taped ribs. The eternally taped ribs of Diamond Dallas Page, as they will go on to be.
0: This is Scott Norton kind of getting revenge from Lasher Slampery.
1: yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The NWO land strikes to the ribs, but the Giant charges into the ring to save Paige and the NWO flee. Giant, oddly, is wearing a Lex Luger t-shirt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> I mean, there's only so many wrestling shirts in his size. I guess it's the
0: best one they have. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like Luger gifted it to him. Maybe after they both broke away from Jimmy Hart. Oh yeah, there you Luger go. was like, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm used to someone." Wearing my face as an article of clothing. <laughs> so would you do that for me, Giant? He was like, I'd be happy to, Lex. <laughs> <laughs> I got I gotta wonder, is the shirt gimmicked where uh when you hit someone or get hit by someone, it gives a big whoa. It better be. Have a little bit voice box in it. That'd be perfect. Yes. <laughs> Giant and Paige pose in the ring and Savage tries to charge the ring again, but the other NWO members drag him away as Paige gives us the sign of the diamond cutter. Paige throws his torn shirt into the crowd for someone to get a nice souvenir. Giant keeps his Lex Luger shirt because that's his souvenir. Yeah, there you go. Thoughts on this segment? It
0: was good. For me, it's kind of like the segment we had in the last year's show where they build up the Mongo Kevin Green tag match. Mm-hmm. It's good, but... I feel like you're selling me another show while I'm already paying to watch this show. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And it's not like you want to have six different shows to promote this on. True. (laughs) But no, I mean, I would like to have a Savage DP match just on the show, but the segment's not bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a fun segment, and Paige and Savage have a lot of charisma. Mm Mm-hmm. It sells Page as one of the major players in the fight against the NWO, showing just how much of a focal point he's become since he began his rise to superstardom at last year's Slambury 1996. Yeah. Even if he needs a save by the suitably impressive giant, Page gets to show bravery and do quite well in a fight against a large portion of the NWO first. Yeah. And he clearly only goes down due to a pre-existing injury. Mm -hmm. So he definitely comes out on top in this segment. I'll say there's a certain irony to swing a crutch at people to make them injured so they'll then need a crutch. Yes, that that is true. (laughs) Oh, I need a crutch. Well, too bad I broke it. It's rare for me to say this, but in contrast to what you said, Al, I think this is a non-match segment that actually did feel like it belonged on the show for me. Mm, Okay. It feels like a large story development. I don't know. Okay. Maybe it actually isn't, but just for me, it felt like this actually has enough of the confrontation to it where something actually changes. Yeah, sure. That it actually makes it work. But I do agree. I kind of wish that it then led to an actual match on the show as well. Yeah. Even if it was just like impromptu tag match or something like that.
0: Yeah, I could have seen them like picking like their low-level guys to go fight him. So throw like Norton and Vincent in, uh, you know, get
1: squashed by DP and Giant. Yes, exactly. Have something else happen on the show. But it feels like they get most of the way to where they need to go.
0: Yeah, no. Like I said, I don't, I don't, obviously, don't mind having Savage DDP on the show. It's just a shame there's not more of that. Yeah, but I get your point. Sure. There is a match on the shockingly on the next show between DDP and Randy Savage.
1: Okay. Our third match is Yuji Asuroyoka versus Rey Mysterio Jr. The referee for this one is Mark Curtis. So
0: on the Saturday night. That'd be WCW Saturday Night, specifically. Episode that before this show, Yuji would make his debut as a protege of Sonny Ono, where he'd beat up, you know, the jabberpone the gave form, but he continued continue beating up after the match ended, which would lead to Rarity ring running out to chase him off.
1: Okay. Short but sweet. Short but sweet. Yeah. <laughs> kind of all you need for introing the new guy. Sure. Mike Tenet rejoins the team for this one. Yasu Ryoka is out first. His outfit kind of looks like if you took the Jushin Liger gear and made it a maskless workout outfit.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: It's a colorful but less full-on superhero. Maybe it's kind of the non-transformed version the protagonist that transformed into Liger would wear Oh. in a yeah, transforming yeah. hero show. Like, they always wear the same color scheme and, and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're the Red Ranger, you you wear all red all, all the time. Yes. <laughs> like, even Marie, Oh, red right everywhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> knew you were going to go there. I had to. Mysterio has a very cool black, silver, and gold version of his own outfit. Mm-hmm. Tanay covers this match meaning a lot to both men. For Yasu Brioka, it's a chance to prove himself after his recent WCW debut. And for Mysterio, it's to reestablish himself as a top contender to the title currently held by Six. Heenan praises Tane's knowledge of the wrestlers and their moves then claims that he stays up all night to teach Tenei all that stuff. (laughs) Tenei sarcastically thanks him for his help. Amusing, Tony. Mm -hmm. Tony points out war on Yasu jacket, standing for Wrestle Association R, the promotion he wrestles for in Japan. Tenei notes that Chris Jericho, Ultimo Dragon, and Mysterio have all wrestled for war, and indeed Mysterio and Yasu are former tag partners. That's true. They mat-wrestle and work each other's legs with kicks. Some neat escapes here. Yasu Ryoka snatches Mysterio's leg to escape a waist lock, and Mysterio uses a similar move to escape Yasu Ryoka's chin lock and put on a knee lock. Yasu Ryoka gets two counts off of a side headlock, huge clothesline, and spinning wheel kick, and his kicks to Mysterio's back draw comparisons to Timo Dragon from Tony. J- justifiably, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mysterio hurricanrana's both over the ropes. He lands on the apron and races in, going for a dive, but Curtis is in the way, trying to count. Mysterio protests the befuddled Curtis, who apparently has never seen a Rey Mysterio match before. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Curtis leans through the ropes to count, so Mysterio vaults over him to land a somersault plancha on Yasu If you ain't gonna move, I'll fly over ya, dusty cheers. Mysterio gives Curtis a wonderful, irritated shrug as he gets back in. Yasu Ryoka gets the ropes on a camel clutch, and Mysterio stomps him hard as Tony notes Mysterio's frustration. Yasu Ryoka counters a whip, and Mysterio flips over the ropes and lands on his feet on the apron. We get a great, oh, come on, kind of gesture by Yasu Ryoka for that one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's nice. It's
1: kind of like, what do I have to do to get this guy down? <laughs> yes. Mysterio tries a springboard splash, but Yasu spin-kicks him out of the air. Mysterio makes the ropes on a pin, and Yasu yells at Curtis. Yasu hits a monster forearm shot and a cool rope-climbing springboard back kick. Tenet notes that Yasu current tag partner in war, Lance Storm, was Chris Jericho's longtime tag partner. Storm will, of course, later work for WCW himself. And at first, I didn't actually realize that this was well before he started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool to hear him getting a call out even before that. I liked uh, he didn't joke about his name as well. Yes. He says he sounds like a weatherman from Omaha. Yes. <laughs> Which he totally does. Which he does. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I'm Lance Storm here with the weather.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yasu Rayoka works Mysterio's arm with an armbar, cross-arm breaker, key lock, strikes, and a leg drop, but Mysterio rakes the eyes, surprising Tane. Yasu Rayoka levels him with a clothesline for two and twists him down into the cross-arm breaker again, then twists Mysterio's arm around the ropes and boots it. Mysterio rolls out, but comes back in to eat more strikes, and Yasu Rayoka dives over the ropes, holding Mysterio's arm to yank it across the rope. Mysterio cradles his arm outside, and Yasu dives out with a double axe handle, nearly taking out the cameraman too. <laughs> Yasu suplexes Mysterio back in for two. Mysterio double leg takedown that's almost a powerbomb, then a split-legged moonsault catches the camera for two. <laughs> Mysterio hip-toss reversal is reversed by Yasu for two, but Mysterio flips it over for two. Mysterio ducks a spinning wheel kick and actually hits a powerbomb. That was pretty impressive from a guy as small as Mysterio.
0: That was a surprise for me, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yasu Ryoka dodges a top rope splash and hits a double-arm DDT for two and a half. Distraught, he screams at Curtis, who reminds him that he can throw him out. <laughs> <laughs> Another double-arm DDT attempt, but Mysterio back-body drops him and bridges for two. Yasu Ryoka spinning wheel kick and back kick, but Mysterio drop kicks Yasu Ryoka out of a top rope dive and hits a springboard hurricanrana for the three count and the win. Heenan and Tony talk about how it could have gone either way at any moment on that one. Mysterio says something rather questionable about Japanese not intimidating Mexican or American wrestlers. And we go to replays. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Re-listen to that, it's...
0: The idea he's going for is that like their divisions aren't going to be intimidated or something. It's not... I've heard worse things. I've heard obviously. worse. He
1: just he really should have said something more with the companies than the countries.
0: Yeah. No, I see that, yeah.
1: It's the same thing as Starcade 95. It's like what they're actually going for is a company versus company thing, but it ends up being sold as nationality versus nationality.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get that. I get
1: yeah. That. We go to replays, getting a much better shot of Yasuo Brioka's double axe handle dive than we got in the match. Yeah. Yeah, in the match, you basically see
0: his feet as yeah. they go past the camera.
1: Yeah, and kind of hit the camera. <laughs> yes. Because mm-hmm. suddenly his in frame colliding with Mysterio, which does look kind of awesome, but at the same time, you're like, wait, what was he doing? <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on this one? I thought this
0: match had really strong action. As we mentioned, they wrestled a couple times with each other. I think they might wrestle against each other once or twice as well. Tanae
1: does mention they were opponents as well. Yeah. Yes.
0: It definitely shows. Um, cause even at this point, Ut's fairly early in his wrestling career. He's about five years from when he started. He turned in 92. It's definitely on Ray to sort of control the match and put things together. I thought he did a really good job with that. Yes. Early on, I think you were at the point when we watched it the first time. It tends to be for the most part, more basic offense from Yuji during the early parts of it. Nothing like bad is just he's, he's not doing the flashy stuff, but he's doing the the more basic fundamental stuff.
1: Yeah. It threw me a little bit at first because he fights like he's a bigger wrestler. Mm-hmm. He like does power strikes rather than the flips and such that I was expecting.
0: Right. But then he, he starts throwing in like spin kicks and then that, that lovely dive that they mostly miss until the replay. Yes. So he definitely compensates for that, I would say.
1: That's a very cool holds and transitions as well. And oh, yeah. And even if he's concentrating a lot on strikes, they look monstrous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the big winner here, not just in the actual pinfall, but in the real scheme of things, definitely Ray. Yeah. They gave him a really good opponent to feed off of, to not just not be a squash match, because this is uh, by no means a squash match. No. Um, it's a great back-and-forth match. But it's clear that long-term, the big future is Mysterio, so he, he ultimately gets the win here and gets it looks strong going into what well, hopefully be more matches against Six and going for the title.
1: Yeah.
0: Even though there's a longer match in the show, I don't think it's too long because they, they mix things up pretty well. They don't get like stuck on a hold for a couple minutes or even, like some of the long matches on shows can tend to get on because mm-hmm. they have this, clearly have the stamina to go longer, quicker matches. But for me, the only thing missing here is there's no like stakes to it.
1: Yeah, because it's not actually for a title... Or for the number one contendership. Yes, yeah. Tanei, I think it is, tries to add some. Yes. Where he says it's it's a really important match for Yasu Ryoka because he's trying to prove himself and that Ray needs to prove that he's in the title picture again, but it's not actually for something.
0: Yeah. I'll get into more when we do the show wrap-up, but for me, there's a start to part of a trend in the show where there's so far really good action, but it doesn't always feel like it's a big high stakes to the matches and the show itself. But yeah, nothing's been bad so far, but yet, it's been quite as big as you might think. thing is, WCW at this point, we're almost two years into Nitro. And the big draw of Nitro is supposed to be that instead of just having jobber matches against the stars and then go pay-per-pay-per-view to watch SummerSlam like WF does, they would have the big matches on the show. Right. The problem they are throwing into, especially around this time, is they've had so many big matches on TV... I think at this point, they're running out of big matches that have pay-per-view. Right. So when you have a match like this, which is really good, but has no ultimate major stakes, makes you wonder, why wasn't this on Nitro? As good as it is. True, true, yeah. And that, that's, that's the double-edged sword of the way Nitro works.
1: Yeah, I think you kind of run into that. It's, it's probably a victim of its own success and being uh, raised to multiple hours. Yes. Where when they had it as a weekly one-hour show, yeah, you could have big matches, but you do it as like, we have one big match a week. Exactly. And then a bunch of other stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. But now it's a two-hour show, so if you're maintaining that, we want to do the big matches, you're using up so many of your big matches. Yes. And you either have to give them unsatisfying endings or blow pay-per-view quality matches.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And they do pull, generally.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, WCW tended to blow their endings even on pay-per-views. <laughs> so, that is also true, yes. Yeah, I thought this was a darn good match. I've not seen Yasu Ryoka before, and I, like I said, I was a bit thrown by his style early on because he wasn't fighting the way I expected him to fight. Mm-hmm. But he ended up very cool and uh, had a lot of good moves. Mysterio filled the flippy move quota quite well anyway. Oh, yeah. And Yasu uh, rope climb spots... That one kick or into the double axe handle dive that we later see were really, really nice and smoothly done. Oh, yeah. Mysterio actually, I thought, kind of played a subtle heel at some points when he gets really vicious and then when he uses the eye rake. Yeah, I understand. The commentators nicely tie that into him getting frustrated, but it feels like a darker mood for Mysterio than we normally get. Yeah. And I agree, you could tell that these two had a really good history of working together. Mm Mm-hmm. Not only did they work together well from a move standpoint, but they had some good character interactions as well. Yes. So it took a little bit for me to warm up to this one, but I really liked it once I got used to it.
0: It's kind of like going back to Dragon Night 25, a couple of those matches featuring, to us anyways, unknown people mm-hmm. against WWE stars. You know, we didn't know what sample Koji Kanemoto was, but seeing the match play, like, oh, he's actually really good. Mm-hmm. So you, don't, you have no expectations going into it, but the ultimate result is quite good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it took me about, I'd say, I don't know, what, two or three of the minutes of its runtime for me to get used to the style of the match, but then I started really being able to appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of like, not to not to insult Yuji Ayoka, but it's kind of like when you first see um, Jerry Flynn. <laughs> and I don't mean to either one of them, but Jerry Flynn's whole thing is he's big and tall, but he didn't, didn't do a lot of power moves. He would just a lot of kicking and ground things. Mm-hmm. So you would think he'd be throwing people around like the Steiner Brothers, but then he just he is not doing that, and you're
1: confused. Yeah. It's a little like that. <laughs> I wonder if there's a, there's a Yuji Basorooka <laughs> in mm. Japan <laughs> to fill the similar name counts.
0: <laughs> Probably. Well, this is Yuji's only WWE appearance, counting Saturday night. That's a shame. Yeah. He was good. I know. I don't know if this was just like a one-off, hey, we have this guy, you want to put on TV to help promote him thing. From what I can tell, he wrestled his whole career in in war. Huh. He trained there at the beginning when it started. He wrestled on through 1999 to when he retired to become a motorcycle mechanic. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, more power to him. <laughs> yeah. During the tail end of this career, actually a little bit following this match, in fact, He'd have a match against Jushin Thunder Liger, who at that point was the current holder of the Super J-Crown. Oh, cool. Yes. Because if you recall, Liger's the one that wins the J-Crown off of Dragon. Right. A little bit after Sarke, actually. It's a funny bit where Dragon comes in with eight belts and challenges Malenko for his one belt. So now he has nine. Yes. But the time he comes back for the rematch, he only has the one belt again. Yes. The poor (laughs) Dean has no second shot at winning the nine belt combo. (laughs)
1: It's like, man... I know it's my belt that I'm trying to win back, but it feels kind of underwhelming compared to last time, Dragon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yuji would actually beat Liger in a match. However, he wouldn't win the whole Super J crown, unfortunately. He would only win one of the belts in the Super J crown, which they then broke off from the belt, which is confusing.
1: Yeah, slightly. You, you, you can have one of my eight belts. I thought the entire idea of those was that we were defended together. Yeah. <laughs> Our fourth match. Is Mortis with James Vandenberg versus Glacier. Referee for this match is Mickey J.
0: Blood runs cold. <laughs> Copyright laws are challenged. This is Mortal uh Wrestle Combat. <laughs> yeah, so basically this whole blood runs cold thing, which we didn't we get a teaser for in the very last show, in fact? Yes, we did. So this was basically attempt to go off the popular success of mortal combat as they probably figured out from the intro yes so you had the ice-based guy you have mortis who obviously has a death-based thing going on with his name mm-hmm. he has a lovely skull face and actually you know the timing exactly he has green armor which is definitely a reptile thing
1: yeah it's funny they made him green instead of yellow yeah because scorpion is yellow and he's sub-zero's nemesis yes correct and then Wrath doesn't wear a mask at all, which
0: is kind of confusing. They kind of gave up on the Mortal Kombat analogs <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Mortis is the bad guy who's come in managed by James Vanderberg, who I'm hoping at one point you know have misspelled James Vanderbeek, but I'm guessing you didn't. I, I did not, no. Oh, well. A man can dream, can't he? <laughs> Vanderberg's the evil semi-satanic kind of looking guy he'd wear red and he has the evil devil beard but he's not they can't go full on satan because it's you know tps and there
1: are are rumors he used to be a druid (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) very substantiated rumors but yes rumors
2: nonetheless
0: (laughs) so it's never quite a shang sung um i guess he's the closest thing you get to that huh
1: i i guess that's the idea is he's shang sung to to the scorpion and sub-zero yeah. I'm not sure who Rath is supposed to be. I guess he's Goro. Uh yeah. It doesn't make sense. Or maybe he's Kano. He might be Kano.
0: He has the right yeah, he has the right beard for it. Yeah. Yeah. They never give him an eye patch. I don't know. Maybe we can't handicap that poor guy by covering one of his <laughs> eyes for a match. I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't wrestle at all, obviously, but I definitely wouldn't wrestle with one of my eyes covered.
1: Yes. I need my depth perception quite well. Mortis, played by Chris Canyon. Has a cool rock organ theme oh, yeah. that I'm pretty sure was also in one of the Warrior Wear games, so it must be public domain. <laughs> mm. <laughs> His outfit is very 90s supervillain. It's like an Image Comics version of Skeletor, maybe. Oh, it's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, about to the groups so people can see it.
1: Yeah. It's got big skulls everywhere and a skull mask with a cape and skull staff. Yes. Unlike an Image Comics version of Skeletor, though, it actually looks cool, probably because there aren't extraneous pouches everywhere. Yes, true. (laughs) Vandenberg has Glacier's helmet. He says that they're going to send Glacier back to his igloo in a body bag. Heenan notes that there's a good chance that Wrath is going to be somewhere as well. Glacier gets cool blue lighting and fake snow. He is blatantly, as we've noted, Mortal Kombat Sub-Zero, (laughs) i'm still not sure how they got away with that (laughs) it's amazing yeah it's not quite as blatant a ripoff as arachnaman but it's still unmissable yes glacier doffs his ceremonial armor and mask on the ramp and charges the ring but slides in so fast that he ends up right in front of mortis who kicks and stomps his knee even as the snow is still falling vandenberg takes joy in watching mortis beckons to the ramp and Wrath comes down wearing a very cool bat-themed trench coat. Is he Wrathula? <laughs> yeah, I see that. Mortis climbs on the turnbuckle to pose, but Glacier hits an electric chair drop and big chops. His knee nearly gives out on a back body drop, but he clotheslines Mortis out of the ring. But Wrath breaks Mortis's skull staff over Glacier's neck. Glacier wins by DQ. Vandenberg hurls verbal abuse at Glacier as Wrath and Mortis double-team Glacier with hard strikes, and Mortis hits a facebuster on Glacier onto the ring steps. Vandenberg tells him he'll never see the helmet again, and slaps him, and Wrath and Mortis go to hit him with a double-team move called the death penalty, but suddenly a fan leaps into the ring and takes Mortis and Wrath down with jumping sidekicks and spin kicks. Vandenberg, Wrath, and Mortis flee as Tony identifies Glacier's savior as Ernest Miller, soon to be known as The Cat. The world heavyweight champion of tournament karate, Doug Dellinger, with a massive Santa beard, (laughs) comes down with security to break it all up, and Vandenberg tells Miller he just opened Pandora's box. Thoughts on this bit?
0: It's easy in action. I've always liked Canyon. He's always been a dark horse um, wrestler for me. Mm -hmm. He never quite got the attention I thought he deserved. Yeah. The problem is this match is way too short. Even... By the standard of this show, where they sadly played the women's match on Fast Forward. This one, they get a bunch of stuff in, but it all feels like it's never a tag match we don't get to see. Right. It's kind of a shame.
1: Yeah, it's, it's basically just an angle, not a match. Yes. But for what it's worth, Miller's kicks when he comes in are amazing and some of the best he's done, actually. Oh, yeah, for sure. Glacier did a great job selling the knee injury as well, and that face buster on the steps looked brutal. Mm-hmm. So it was really short and not really a match, but I do feel like they made the most of what they got.
0: Yeah. It's kind of funny that Ernest Miller runs and does the kicks, and he's introduced. He goes, Oh, it's Ernest Miller. And then I think it's on Heenan to go, Well, let people that don't know who he is tell us who he is. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's like, Oh, my goodness,
1: he's here. And you're like, Oh, the guy, anything for telling me who that guy is? It's not the best establishment there. I mean, it's, it's simultaneously a really good introduction for him in that you see what he can do yes, with those amazing kicks, but it's also a really bad introduction because they don't do a great job of explaining who the heck he is for, for a little bit. A bit and yeah. so they've left you in confusion for a bit.
0: A little bit, yeah. I do really like Mortis's mask. Yes. He has a good combination with the skull mask and like, having Bob Baldwin-
1: Palmer's face painted black to fit everything together. Yeah, his look is cool. Yes. It's, it's definitely very cool. I still, this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about regularly when we hit Glacier matches during this period, but he's probably the closest guy that they've gotten to someone that should be a Glacier opponent because at least he's a fast paced wrestler. Yes. But uh, it is a little bit of a shame that, you know, they have Glacier who they build as like doing more martial artsy matches. Mm hmm. But they never really hit the point where they give him other guys doing the same martial artsy style to fight against. Yes. So, I think Mortis is as close as you really get to a good fit for Glacier. But they didn't do what they needed to do, I think, to give him the sort of people he should be fighting.
0: Yeah. Glacier's first opponent is famously Big Bubba, which is bizarre.
1: Yeah. Who does his best
0: with it, but he's, he's blatantly not the guy that you should be facing. Maybe with that one they're going for the one scene in a lot of those especially the nineties Kung Fu films or karate movies where never they have a bar fight and he shows up how much he can do his kicks.
1: Yeah. Um I think he does have one match against Pat Tanaka that works out pretty well.
0: Yeah, the second match I recall is Pat Tanaka who they dress up like a like a student of Bruce Lee.
1: Yes. Nice outfit and everything for you. A lot of his matches are are disappointing, not for what he's doing in them, but for just them not putting them up against the sort of person that is going to work in that style. Yeah, put him with, with Dragon.
0: Yeah, I would say Dragon would be a great example of that. Yeah, obviously as you can probably guess, this is leading to more. Although curiously, the next pay per view match is not Glacier Earth Miller against Morrison Wrath.
1: You would think it would be.
0: Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? It's actually Glacier against Wrath at the Great American Bash.
1: Hmm. Interesting. I
0: will note, just for historical reference, that Wrath is the only person to make it from Mortal Kombat knockoff character to actual Mortal Kombat character. Because 1998, he, he guest stars one episode of Mortal Kombat Conquest.
1: Right, yes, I forgot about that.
0: <laughs> I think he's also credited as Wrath. It's a combination of them crediting him as his wrestler name, not necessarily his character name. for us as yeah. his Wrath, but yeah. He's given the gimmick of knockoff Mortal Kombat, and it's actual Mortal Kombat, so.
1: <laughs> That's, that is funny. We go to Gene Okerlund, who says he'd like to talk to Ernest Miller, or one of the lovely ring attendants. Yeah. He shills the hotline, 1-900-909-9900, and throws back to the commentary team. That was unnecessary. (laughs) It's like they just hit a point on the show where they realize, oh, we're not doing anything other than matches, let's quickly do something else.
0: Yeah, I bet you.
1: Our fifth match is Jeff Jarrett with Annoying Country Music and God Awful Outfit. Oh and Deborah <laughs> McGeichel. <laughs> Versus Dean Malenko for Malenko's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. So after his latest exit from the WWF, Jeff
0: Jarrett joined WCW and quickly tried to join the four horsemen. Immediately this caused some dissension in the group because it seemed like Flair really wanted him in there for some reason.
1: But no one else did yeah uh flair like tries to do a like a hard sell of Jeff Jarrett as worthy of being in the horseman. They even like do a strut off at one point they do yes, which is hilarious because Flair is like strutting in a billion different ways, and Jarrett just keeps going back and doing his his one way that he knows how to strut, <laughs> <laughs> so the crowd turns on it almost immediately. They just blatantly just cheer for Flair and then boo the heck out of Jarrett, <laughs> yeah, which poor guy honestly,
0: <laughs> yeah. Book to fail, you could argue, yeah. Pretty much. But yeah, so there's been real ascension in the group as far as him being a part of it. Most of them don't want him there, but Flair does. Uh, Mongo, especially, is not a fan of wanting him in there. The strife in The Forestman is a big factor going in background, while Jared is going after the U.S. title currently held by Dean Blanco. All right.
1: Deborah's white and gold dress is quite nice. The Her Beauty Queen sash reads, Queen of the WCW. Burn that sash.
0: <laughs> Burn it forever.
1: <laughs> Jarrett's stupid white and gold straps outfit is as awful as ever.
0: I think he's going for like a guitar strength thing. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. There's <laughs> like if they're too, both too wide and not enough of them.
1: Yeah, it's it'd be a perfectly acceptable wrestling outfit if you just like take off the top part. Yeah. It's it's so dumb. You know it's bad when someone eventually changes outfits to one that includes a t-shirt that reads Slap Nuts, and it's an improvement.
0: That's true, yeah.
1: (laughs) Malenko's vest now has nice, shiny silver that looks like icicles coming down. It's a cool look, though. Honestly, the flash never quite seemed right for Malenko. He's too Mm -hmm. serious for that. We get a Jarrett sucks chant. Let's be clear, crowd. Jarrett does not suck. His outfit sucks. Yes. Jarrett has to stop a strut after an arm drag when Malenko springs up, ready to deck him. Be careful, Heenan advises, or you'll be strutting yourself all the way into the Texas Cloverleaf. <laughs> Jarrett and Malenko trade drop toe holds, and Tony notes Malenko goes right to the next move, while Jarrett takes time showboating. Malenko takes control with some mat wrestling, backflipping out of a brief Jarrett head scissors hold, and slapping on an STF in one of the smoothest transitions I have ever seen. Malenko out-wrestles Jarrett on the mat, and Jarrett goes after Malenko's legs. We get a shot of Deborah talking, but there's no sound. He then claims he can read her lips. <laughs> Jarrett grabs Malenko's leg and tries to trip his other, but Malenko actually hops right over it, though a second one catches him. Malenko works Jarrett's knee with holds and elbows, then throws Jarrett out, puts his leg on the barricade, and dropkicks it. Ow! <laughs> hmm Jarrett signals a timeout, <laughs> but he ambushes Malenko as they get back in, wildly stomps him, and hits a beautiful dropkick for two. Jarrett abdominals stretch, and he gets leverage from Deborah, Just to keep his balance, Heenan explains, as though that would not be cheating.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Malenko forces him to the ropes to break and nearly gets his own, but Jarrett falls over his leg. Malenko kicks the heck out of him. If that was a botch, excellent cover. A Malenko double hand punch sends Jarrett out for Deborah to check on him. Back in, Jarrett cheap shots Malenko on a test of strength and wrenches his arm, but Malenko uses Jarrett's flowing locks to escape. <laughs> Tony says this match is an example of the traditional wrestling the NWO wants to destroy— And yeah, if the NWO wants to stop me from watching Dean Malenko matches, they are ultra heels in my book.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, thousand percent.
1: Malenko backs suplex for two. Jarrett swinging neckbreaker, and he tries the figure four, but Malenko kicks his injured knee. Malenko tries the Texas cloverleaf, but Jarrett rolls him up for two, then squirms for the ropes to escape a second attempt. Jarrett dumps Malenko outside and drops him on the barricade. Back in, Malenko rolls through a Jarrett crossbody for two, and the trade sleeper holds. Jarrett hits a shinbreaker to escape and locks on the figure four, but Malenko gets the ropes. They knock heads on a turnbuckle rebound and both go down. Jarrett falls out to the floor. Deborah checks on him, but Mongo McMichael comes out and throws Jarrett back in, saying he can take care of himself. "'Get in there and do something!' he yells. <laughs> and leads Deborah away to help prepare for his own match. Jared and Malenko to their feet, and a swift series of reversals leads to a Malenko double underhook powerbomb into the Texas Cloverleaf to give Malenko the submission victory. Mongo leads Deborah away, ignoring Jared's loss, as Malenko poses with the belt and says something unintelligible to the camera. (laughs) Thoughts on this one?
0: It's another really strong match. Like with the regal dragon matchup, they really into the technical style.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Malenko is obviously it's made Malenko, so his transitions are amazing. Yes, everything is so fluid with him. Even part like you said, like the part where Jeff tries to put him in a, in a hold again,
1: and they he sort of falls down and kicking him. To me, that felt like intentional spot, but I think it was. I think it was. I could just see it being. It felt like Jarrett trying to scramble to escape Malenko, putting the abdominal stretch on him, and just going down as a result of that. But mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure if he went down because they meant him to go down, or if he went down because he accidentally tripped over Malenko's leg. Yeah. yeah. To me, it read as a spot, which if it
0: was a botch, it's credit to Malenko because he made that look like it was intentional. So. Yeah, he's right in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, the only part I've... I'm mean, looking for you. Maybe you can clear this up for me. So, you have this spot where Malenko drop kicks Jared's knee on on the outside and he's selling it like crazy. But then when taking him back in the ring, he just starts stomping him. I was trying to figure out is that was the idea that he was pretending to be hurt as badly hurt as he was?
1: Oh uh, no, he he actually I I did catch he stomps him with the good leg. Mm. The leg that's not hurt.
0: Okay. I wasn't sure if that was like I could see that being a ploy like, oh I'm really, really hurt. So it's like, you know, kinda of No, playing.
1: it's it's clearly supposed to be on purpose because Malenko later um gets out of the figure four by kicking that knee.
0: Right, right. I, I just wasn't sure if it was that or if it was the timing being weird in him. like just, just To a certain extent, he feels like he knows sells that. I was like, you explain it's a little better. He's not doing as good a job as Brad Armstrong was right. the prior year. Pacing in here was really nice as well. I thought they kept everything moving. Mm-hmm. Even when they have a long hold, like I talked about with, with uh, the rest of it before, there's always something happening. Yes. It's not really a rest spot, there's, there's some action continuously throughout. So you don't feel like they're just starting to catch their breath and remember where the next spot is. And commentary helped as well. Commentary, they point out how that Domino's stretch that Malenko's in is in there quite a while. And it's a long time from being a hold like that given his... Yes. And so they speculate whether it's intentional or not. So they play that really well. Some of those matches where, as we talked before, Malenko's only real negative is that he never had a really strong character. I leaned into the Iceman thing. And he made it work, but yeah, that and his size maybe kept him from going past a certain point in WCW, mm-hmm. and arguably wrestling in general. But to their credit in this match, with Jeff being such a heel, I thought they covered that pretty well. The crowd seems really into the match, back and forth.
1: Yeah, Jarrett brings the character yes. aspect of it, so Malenko can just fully do the Iceman thing, and it works entirely. And he seems to slip in a little bit as well, there's point
0: where he, like, with the stomping after he gets mm-hmm. in the hole, where it seems like he's throwing a little emotion there, which is nice. Yes, which even the announcers point out, I think. Yes. Because that's the most emotion you'll ever see from that man. <laughs> Exactly. The story aspect's kind of interesting. I think come out there. It's nice that he interferes, but doesn't, like, it's not the actual in the match, night. Like he rolls him in and, like, could just be that like, gets a pin on him or not? Right, he just gets him in there and it just continues. Exactly, yeah. It's clear that if he hadn't been there to push him in, Jarrett could have recovered more and maybe fought back better, but yeah, it's not the end of the match of interference. Right. Yeah, that was a good match.
1: Yeah, I thought this was absolutely terrific. Malenko and Jarrett work great together, and I liked the progression in the story, with Jarrett starting off showing off, but after he suffers enough for that, he gets ticked off and gets really vicious. Yes. His character work was exceptional in the match. Both do some excellent counter-wrestling, particularly with some of those mat holds, and Malenko pulls off some of the most exceptionally timed and smoothest counters I have yet seen from him. hmm The little things Malenko especially does in this match are great. That little hop over the leg sweep. Yes. And when they knock heads, he's actually motioning like he's going for a neck breaker. Oh. Okay. So he's not leaving it to just them colliding. He's, he's telling you what move he was going for, mm. which is terrific. Mm-hmm. He does so much to just make matches look legit. Mm-hmm. I agree, Mongo's involvement at in the end is interesting. He doesn't really interfere, and he can't really be blamed for Jarrett's loss. He just gets him back in there, and the fight continues normally. So it was a nice way of involving that storyline without having it spoil what was a good match going on. Exactly, yeah. It's clear Malenko and Jarrett are entirely comfortable working with each other, and they complement each other's styles perfectly, leading to a great match.
0: Well, it's a great pairing having them together. Jeff Jarrett would win the U.S. title in a rematch on the June ninth episode of Nitro, something Malenko, which would lead to an ongoing feud with him and Mongo over the title on upcoming pay-per-views. And famously, Jeff Jarrett would be kicked out of the Forestman on the June 23rd Nitro. Although, it's, as they mentioned, story is kind of interesting. He kicked out of the group and just leaves. It's not like he's kicked out and beaten up, like, say, Sting. What the heck? No horseman beatdown? I know, right? It's just, they don't want to put their hand in that stupid outfit he's wearing all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a good defense, I guess. Our sixth match is Meng, temporarily with the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, versus Chris Benoit with Woman in a death match. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. The personal view between Benoit and Solvin continued
0: from last year, with the latter using proxies in, to battle Benoit. In this case, using Ming, who's part of the Dungeon of Doom, which definitely still exists. Although I'm not sure what their goal is at this point, and there's no magic stuff anymore.
1: Yeah, it's it is the weird period of the Dungeon of Doom where it's just a faction name, yeah, rather than a theme.
0: Because, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like Humorous and Ming and Conan, and, and then they definitely max muscles in there at some point, but it's like, I don't know what their goal or like aspirations are here.
1: Yeah. I guess beat up Chris Benoit, basically, at this point. I guess so. That's a long running feud, if you think about it, though, isn't it? It's last year's show. Yeah. It was already going full bore. Yeah. So it had been going for a little bit before that, even. So it's a year plus long feud. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. hmm A death match means there's no DQs, no countouts, and pinfalls don't count. The match ends when a competitor cannot continue. Meng starts yelling at Jimmy Hart moments after they enter, and drives Hart backstage, making his entrance solo and punching and kicking at the camera. I liked his dark blue tights. They're a good look for him, I thought. Yeah. Benoit actually gets the Horseman theme this year. It's... Always kind of uncomfortable watching Benoit make an entrance alongside woman, Mm -hmm. just given where their story ends. Yeah. We get some great Four Horsemen t-shirts in the crowd. I particularly like the one with the giant Roman numeral four over a galloping horse that's snorting fire. (laughs) 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 That looks awesome. (laughs) Tony says that Benoit told woman that no matter what, she is not to throw in the towel for him. Benoit dodges Meng's strikes and takes him down with a dragon screw leg whip, but Meng somehow takes Benoit down during a camera close-up. <laughs> Benoit rolls out, and Woman checks on him. Randy Anderson starts to count, and Dusty jokes he's just keeping his arm in shape since there's no countouts. <laughs> Back in, Meng hits a massive belly-to-belly suplex, but Benoit hits a German suplex. Benoit lands solid kicks and a drop kick to the leg, and tries the figure-four leg lock, but Meng stops that with a boot to the face. Outside, Benoit throws Meng to the steps for Zero Cena. Yes. Back in, Meng beats the hell out of Benoit. Anderson keeps trying to get them out of the corner. Benoit tries to fight back, but Meng just shoves him away and roars. We briefly see Jacqueline come out on the entrance ramp, but nothing comes of that. He actually, like, look away from it and then... They just cut so abruptly. Yeah, she, she walks out there, woman goes over briefly, and then Jacqueline just turns around and walks away. Yeah. She's she's working with Kevin Sullivan at this point, I think? Yes, correct. Benoit lands a few solid strikes, but a men clothesline hits him upside the head and he goes down. Anderson starts a ten count to see if Benoit is out, but Benoit is moving by five. Men continues the beating with a headbutt, a stomp, a single leg crab, as woman screams from outside. Benoit agonizingly drags himself to the ropes, and Meng breaks. Heenan points out that he didn't have to. There's no DQ. Mm-hmm. Meng keeps knocking Benoit down, headbutt for five, a pile driver for seven. The crowd chants madly for Benoit, and he reverses a short-arm clothesline into the crossface. Meng drags himself to the ropes, and Benoit breaks. Tony notes that that one might have been because Meng was going to drag himself and probably Benoit out of the ring. Yeah, that was a good
0: cover and commentary, I thought.
1: Yeah. Dusty misinterprets that as the two agreeing to a rope break stipulation somehow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've caught that on commentary, I'm like, what?
1: That's not what that means. Meng lands blow after blow to take Benoit down for five. Benoit challenges him, so Meng obliges with more strikes for seven. Again, but Benoit dodges a big boot and hits two rolling German suplexes. Meng elbows free of a third and lands hard chops, but Benoit counters with the crossface again. Meng resists the crossface through sheer neck power. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's just like he refuses to let him bend the neck back. It's amazing. And he rolls through the ropes to force Benoit to let go. He has to shove Anderson away to do it. (laughs) Benoit hits a suicide dive. Both slowly up, and Benoit throws Meng in and goes up top, but Meng grabs him. Benoit floats over. German suplexes him down and tries the swan-dive headbutt from the top, but Meng catches him by the throat with the Tongan death grip. Woman gets on the apron and begs Benoit to let her throw in the towel, and he refuses, but he collapses, unable to continue. Anderson awards the match to Meng. Woman climbs through the ropes to check on Benoit, and Meng leaves peacefully as the other refs and the trainer come to treat Benoit. The slow-motion replay kind of hurts the finish a bit. It makes it clearer that Benoit wouldn't have really hit with the headbutt, even if Meng hadn't grabbed him. Yeah. But it was a neat idea, at least. For sure, yeah. Thoughts on this one? Um, this one was
0: really good, I thought. I don't know, I've never been bothered by Meng matches, but I've never been, like, wowed by Ming Meng match. He's kind of in the middle for me a lot of times.
1: He's a reliable performer, but not generally a standout. Yeah.
0: The more I see him, though, the more I, I sort of catch his nuance and sort of... Yeah. I can see where he he can be used really well. I think this is a great case of that. Yes. Because what this match really gives you is, ignoring the feature history with him, obviously, Benoit makes a really good sort of fight from beneath. constantly keep fighting good guy here. Very much like what Sting mastered so well. Yes. Like, he watched those Sting Vader matches and... Sting Ding will look strong at first, then he'll get powered down by very overall strength and mass, especially the mass part of it. And uh, but then he keep fighting back, and he would make through. This is very similar to that for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know this is quite as good as those because those matches they're just you know they they have so much practice and they have so much experience in the big stage. Those are masterpieces. Like you, yeah. You, that, like, that's, it's 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 not an insult to say not as good as that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, him fighting from beneath, I thought was really good. It got. I don't think of Benoit as getting, like, major crowd reactions. I think he gets consistent, like, good reactions when he's a good guy, but he gets a really good reaction in this match.
1: So, I mean, I think it's a credit to both of them. It is clearly horseman country. Yeah. As a true. trick player's hometown, too, so I'm sure that helped. Mm-hmm. The way the match plays out, though, really helps him that way.
2: hmm
0: Because when he has to make a comeback, he can throw a good suplex, and keep striking. And the second time, he gets him in the crossface. You see him like pulling him down by the arm, which is a really impressive visual with that big Ming is. Yeah, as you mentioned the the finished wall creative is kind of ruined a bit on the replay because you can see him
1: doing that, right right towards Ming's hand. Yes, I'm sure that the aim had to be really precise to make that work. But sure, I kind of wonder like I don't know maybe if they'd had Meng position his hand on his stomach, then Benoit could have gone for, like, the gut with the headbutt. Yeah. And Meng could still have gotten the hand up there. Mm-hmm. But obviously, they, they had to work with the positioning pretty tightly to, to get that spot to work.
0: Yeah, the tricky thing is, because Meng is so big, it'd be harder. Like, I could see what, if doing this with a smaller guy, for instance, he could be in the right position for the headbutt and just sort of roll or shimmy over to the side and the hand there, like, while Ben was falling. Right. But aside from that, Match is really good. The one thing that's a detractor for me, besides that finished aspect, is Woman's presence at the ringside, ignoring the uh, awkwardness that it provides, obviously, seeing in 2021. She's good at ringside first, really selling the emotion of it, mm-hmm. but at a certain point, she just turned into a horror movie character screaming all the time. <laughs> it loses effectiveness after it's been gone so long. Mm mm-hmm. So when it's done early on, it's good. And when it's the more up at the end, like she comes the apron, trying to ask for him to throw the towel in, I think it works. But the point towards the middle the latter part, when she just starts screaming all the time. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, the thing, it's kind of weird. Jacqueline comes out for a split second on the screen and then just kind of leaves. And then it'll cut back to her walking away. And there's no payoff to it in this match. So it's a little weird. Yeah. I'm not sure why she even does it.
1: Yeah, this felt like a hard fought, hard hitting match. And it made Meng reminiscent, I agree, of Vader in a, in a Vader versus Sting match in his sheer power. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, Meng always looks tough, but this one took it to another level with him. Benoit looked brave and tough, too, for being able to keep going, but I do have to say, honestly, it was a bit rare for him to actually look like he had much of a chance. He He was, like, keeping fighting, but it always, always, always seemed like he was on the receiving end of everything.
0: Yeah, the key for the match with him is that he had to fight to get
1: you know, Ming down to so put a hold on him. That was the only way to win the match. Right. And even then, I think the first crossface, it looks like, oh, he's got a chance to win. But the second crossface, it actually it actually still seems almost powerless before the sheer might of Meng's neck muscle. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think Mr. Dusty makes a good point
0: in commentary that... He didn't have the cross face on or under Ming's nose. He has it up on the forehead. Right. So he's not getting the full torque on as well. He hasn't
1: managed to get the hold fully locked in. Yeah.
0: Exactly. That's probably why that one doesn't work as well.
1: Aside from that, the other problems I had were, honestly, Randy Anderson and woman. Hmm. Anderson really seemed to behave entirely like this was a normal match for about the first half of it. True. Before he finally seemed to start focusing the counts on just seeing if someone could continue the fight. Yeah. I know refs do that all the time, but in this one, it really stood out and got kind of laughable. Mm -hmm. And Woman, I agree. I think she did really well at first showing concern and worry for Benoit, but by the end of the match, you can just hear her screaming and worry on every single move. Yeah. No individual moment is bad. No. And it's great acting on her part, honestly, but I agree. It's so consistent that it loses all impact. Yeah. I still enjoyed the spectacle of the match, and it was very cool to see Meng booked so powerfully. But I just wish it kind of held together a little better. Yeah.
0: Also, the other thing that's maybe missing is I understand Sullivan not being involved in that near ringside because the whole idea he's using basically his minions to take out Benoit. But it would be nice to have him, like maybe like come out at the end like on the uh, entryway. Yes. And like him and Jacqueline sort of like looking happily on like look we, we got our everything worked. Come out,
1: give your Dungeon of Doom cackle and yeah, have have some fun.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I, I do miss Sullivan on this if it since it's so tied to him, yeah. You can have, you can have him to do a promo before the match since he's yep. not going to be at ringside, It would be great too. Yep. Curiously,
0: the pair would have a rematch at Great American Bash that being Bim Wan Ming in another death match. Huh. So yeah, it kind of blunt the whole death aspect of a death match when you just do it twice in a row. It doesn't it doesn't feel like you're really fighting to the death when you just do it again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It's also weird, this could really be a last man standing match, but I guess I think it's like an old school aspect to it. I mean, the 10 count. Isn't it usually like a Texas death match is the similar thing as well, I believe? I mean, there's so many different
1: names, and yeah, they all mean whatever they want them to mean at right. any one moment, you know?
0: I don't think it may have many circumstances where a match like just called it a death match.
1: Yeah. It
0: tends to have taken more.
1: Normally, they have more of a descriptor, yeah. Yeah.
0: Or deathmatch matches come a thing, unfortunately, the sort of garbage wrestling where you yes. constantly slam people awkwardly into light tubes and doors and all this, I mean, the like, toasters and stuff.
1: Yeah. Tony throws to a great American bash promo, or on Peacock, a advertisement for Moisturizer. <laughs> I got a lovely ad for uh, Allstate. <laughs> there you go.
2: Wouldn't be a barbecue without you. Yo, bro, welcome to the Bash.
0: WCW presents the Great American Bash with plenty of meat to sink your teeth into.
1: Dude, you want a dog? What's a mustard? This ain't no picnic, monkey boy.
2: It's the Great American Bash. Bang! It's WCW's Great American Bash. Sunday, June 15th, live and only on pay per view. Call your cable or satellite company to order now. <laughs>
1: We see a guy barbecuing, and Diamond Dallas Page welcomes us to the bash. Interspersed with some wrestling clips, the Steiners offer us hot dogs and mustard, but DDP tells us it isn't a picnic. Kimberly tells us it's the Great American Bash, and DDP gives us a bang! It's not quite as ridiculous a promo as last year, but still kind of fun. Yeah. Now, if it's not a picnic, why are they serving food like that? Because it's a barbecue. Oh, okay. It's a totally different thing than a picnic. Oh even though they're both outside events where you eat lots of food and grill things. And you said picnic tables. Yes. Okay. They're, they for this moment, barbecue tables. Oh, okay,
0: good to know. The one thing that's missing from this one versus last year is the WCW-shaped steak, sadly.
1: That, that is, yes. I was so disappointed that they didn't. It just has a Great American Bash written on it instead of being in the WCW shape. Mm-hmm. What I want to know the most, though, is who the dude in the sparkly gold suit was that was in the background. It was... One guy walking around in the background in this like luminous gold uh, suit coat. <laughs> I, I don't know. Who the heck are you? <laughs> I did not recognize him. I don't think it was any WCW guy. For his name now, there's a backstage
0: guy that he produced a lot of the vignettes and he's the voice you hear in all the NBO
1: intros. Oh, ah, okay. I'd be funny if that was like that was him just to, his one on screen appearance. Yeah, I'm genuinely curious. Was that someone getting to make an appearance finally or was that just. Random actor they hired. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite as goofy as last time. It was, it was fun,
2: but
0: yeah, it wasn't quite the same. We don't get the WCW Backyard Olympics. No, exactly.
1: <laughs> Our seventh match is Conan and Hugh Morris of the Dungeon of Doom with Jimmy Hart versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott. The referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. With the titles currently
0: held by the Outsiders at Nash and Hall... You would think this would be a case of the two teams fighting for a shot at the gold. However, far than can tell, this is actually not a number one contendership match. Hmm. It's certainly not presented as such. So it's really just, here's two strong tag teams, one of whom is a previous champion, fighting for this match, which I guess is a bragging right thing, and maybe theoretically getting a title shot, but... Hmm. Again, going I mentioned before, four, there's not really any stakes in this match. Yeah. No WCW stakes, to be exact. <laughs> Couldn't resist, sorry.
1: I take back every insult I made about Conan's entrance gear last year. It was still much, much better than his plaid shirt with only the top button done up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A fan smacks his hat off from behind, and he scoops it up and just keeps going. That was quite smooth, actually. (laughs) Morris has a weird combination of his Laughing Man colorful Riddler-esque tights and a black, red, and white torn-looking coat. It just doesn't really go together at all. Mm Mm-hmm. The Steiners come out in red wrestling singlets that look like shiny latex. Yes, they do. Not flattering. And Scott's shiny belt is strange. Rick's leather jacket with the shiny bulldogs on the shoulders, though, is awesome. 100%. One lady at ringside looks more embarrassed than excited when the camera zooms in on her. It's very much a, I'm smiling, but please stop filming me look. (laughs) Dusty calls Conan, Conad. Scott and Morris start. Morris claims Scott is pulling his hair as covered to pull Scott's hair on a takedown. <laughs> but Scott blocks turnbuckle smashes and hits a belly-to-belly suplex. Tagged to Rick, and Morris starts off strong against him as Conan mocks Rick's barking, but Rick's overhead belly-to-belly suplex Steiner line and top rope Steiner line stop that. Morris scrambles outside. You can take him, Hart encourages. You're okay. <laughs> nice positive reinforcement there. Yeah. Morris tags Conan. Heenan says the Steiners aren't hard to beat if you do your homework, but Tony says they have a winning percentage of 875. Wait, they've won way, way, way more matches than they've ever been in? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think you get a certain number of points and you win matches, so maybe that's what it is. Okay. Rick hits a very high German suplex and a hip toss, then drops a charging Conan with a strike for two. Scott takes over, and Conan screams in panic as Scott hits a massive overhead belly-to-belly suplex. Conan tags in a reluctant Morris. Scott attacks, but Hart trips him, and Morris and Conan trade off to wear him down as Rick accidentally distracts the ref, trying to stop some double-teaming. Conan rolling clothesline earns two, and Conan and Morris try a double armbar, but Rick boots Conan in the head to send him rolling out. Morris Armbar transitions to Conan awkward-looking surfboard. Conan holds Scott for a Morris clothesline, but Scott ducks. Conan, the smartest heel in history, was already ducking, so Morris doesn't hit him and instead careens out over the ropes. <laughs> I, I knew you had to appreciate that spot. You're always yes. yelling about the heels standing right in the way while they're holding someone. <laughs> yes, I did know that. <laughs> Scott hits a belly-to-belly suplex on Conan anyway, and gets a boot-up on a Morris second-rope double axe handle, then tags Rick. Rick Steiner lines and slams both heels, sends Conan out with a Steiner line, and hits a slam and top-rope bulldog, kind of, to Morris for two. Even though, as Tony notes, Morris is not the legal man. Yes. Conan saves, and Tony says that Morris made the save. (laughs) Very right and very wrong in the space of seconds. (laughs) Yes. Everybody brawls. The Steiners whip the heels at each other, but Morris reverses, so Conan and Rick collide, and Morris clotheslines Rick. Scott disposes of Conan, but Morris tries his moonsault. Scott clearly sees it, but makes no attempt whatsoever to help. But Rick dodges anyway, and Morris eats Matt. Scott whips Morris to the ropes, and hits the Frankensteiner, then rolls out, and Rick pins Morris for the three count and the win. Conan was still the legal man. I was wondering about that. The Steiners hug and celebrate. Awkward moment at ringside as Scott starts to high five some fans, and a lady in a gold blouse joins in, so he goes to try to slap hands with her exclusively, but she just kind of rotates her fists oddly at him, and Scott finally just walks by to shake hands with the shorter blonde lady next to her. <laughs> All I could figure out was maybe the gold lady was trying to tell him that the blonde lady wanted to beat him? Yeah. Seems like she's maybe trying to signal that to him. I don't know. That's all I could figure out. The Steiners walk off, and Jimmy Hart pitches a fit in the ring. Conan slowly gets back in to join Hart and Morris. Morris apologizes to Conan, and they hug. But Conan forearms him, drop kicks his knee, and DDTs him. Hart is in disbelief and chases after him as he leaves. You said blood in, blood out, he says over and over. But Conan leaves. Hart goes to check on Morris, still repeating that phrase. I'm guessing that's something Conan said when he joined the dungeon, maybe? Yeah, I believe so. It seems like he really wants to make sure we hear that. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: We cut to replays and Heenan says that WCW is going to give the Steiners a title shot for sure. Thoughts on this one?
0: That's what they have described as a rough and tumble hoss fight. <laughs> yes. They talked before with this diner, when they decide they're going to throw you, they are going to throw you. Yes. It's better if you cooperate and make a nice landing, but if you don't cooperate, you're still going over. You're, you're still going airborne, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Yes. This is good as far as like really being hard hitting. Uh, they play up the sort of burgeoning teamwork of Morris and Conan, while I thought. You see a great example of how they basically work separately and get their butt kicked quite definitively by both Steiners when they trade out. But then once they get a little advantage with, with Jimmy Hart grabbing an ankle, they tend to do better.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, some stuff doesn't quite go right. That bulldog where he kind of grazes his head in a nookie as he goes by. That's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> good. <laughs> I was glad no one noticed the weirdest of... Scott looking at the guy doing moonsault, and just sort of walking away like, yeah, I'm sure he's got it fine.
1: I'm guessing that he turned around too early. Yeah. I'm guessing it was supposed to take longer dealing with Morris, and then turn around just after Rick dodged, but yes. he clearly he gets, he gets turns like 15 seconds too early. It's a, it's a long gap, yeah. <laughs> he clearly stops and sees
0: him before he even jumps from the moonsault, and then just sort of walks by the action like an observer. Yeah. It's almost like the meme period for a while, where you'd put um, I think it was John Travolta in the background of shots, reacting from Pulp Fiction. Mm. He's kind of just he's there while the
1: action's happening and not, doesn't seem affected by it. Only thing I did wonder is if that might maybe have been a storyline thing, because I know we soon get into the Steiner's breakup storyline, hmm. where Scott is starting to get more arrogant and wanting to prove he's better than Rick. I mean, maybe it's it still a ways off though. Yeah, I think that's still a ways off, and it seems. Like a weird way to use that. So I'm pretty sure that was just a botch.
0: Yeah. Like you, I'm not a big fan of the red vinyl outfits. It's um, It looks a bit too S&M-y, yi guess, maybe. Yes. That's the word I was going for. Yes. <laughs> With the color, like the shyness, and then the sort of sparkly nature of Scott's um,
1: <laughs> belt there. So does S&M stand for the Steiners in Michigan?
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> Some poor person can be really confused and they go to SMN clubs.
1: I'm I'm sorry, every All my relatives in Michigan.
0: <laughs> I'm still convinced that the belt that Scott's wearing must be some sort of like protective thing, like up his back, because maybe Rick does not wear one. Oh, at least not the same level for sure. Yeah, so it's it's like a only a Scott thing. That's it must be what it is. Um, otherwise, I thought it was was fun. Um, I've sort of grown on both Hugh Morris and Conan in general. I think they work well in certain matches. Mm-hmm. The pace kept well um, for the most part, and
1: they, yeah, that, that worked pretty well. Yeah, I thought this was fun. The dungeon guys were really up for going toe-to-toe with the Steiners, so there were a lot of big, muscly clotheslines and suplexes in the match. I agree, some spots got a little botchy. Uh, Steiner liner two doesn't quite land right, and there's the bulldog and the weird kind of mistimed ending. The double armbar spot that uh, Conan and Morris use is a little bit odd, too. But overall, the spot looked intense, and the match moved really fast. Potentially slightly flubbed ending and missing tag aside, this worked really well. And see, I do enjoy tag matches if there's only one or two on the card and they feature actual tag teams. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's true.
0: (laughs) As you might imagine, with the split between Morris and Conan, it's at least to a match from the two of them at the Grand Record Bash.
2: Okay.
1: I'd be interested to see how that one would go. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, As far as the Steiners and the tag titles, unfortunately, due to the transition to Peacock, the Nitros are not on, I guess, the new network, I would call it now. So I can't confirm whether or not will they actually get a tie match. It's possible this does lead to a match between the two of them on Nitro, but as far as interview matches, it is not.
1: Our eighth match is Steve Mongo McMichael with Deborah McMichael versus Reggie White with his strength coach. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis.
0: In the WF, the pair would famously be part of Lawrence Taylor's all-pro team at WrestleMania
1: 11. Yes. That's for uh, backup that Lawrence Taylor brought in against the Million Dollar Corporation, as I recall. Correct,
0: yes. Yeah, Lawrence Taylor's book and the Roll Your Eyes main event of WrestleMania 11 uh, against Pam Bigelow, who, yes, is seconded by the Million Dollar Corporation, the team that can somehow never win titles for very long or... I would really would matches, but they're <laughs> a serious, dangerous threat, totally. Yes. <laughs> uh, Resume eleven is the Julian Jack of WrestleMania's. If you consider that WrestleMania 9 is the pandemic of WrestleMania's. Because <laughs> let's be honest, they're both bad. <laughs> but one is so famously bad it overshadows the other. Again, <laughs> am I can, I'm missing some nitro build up from what I can see from stuff I could find. Um, they announce there's going to be a match with Mongo and a, and a football player, so he challenges Reggie White to a match, and of course, Reggie White is in the arena because they're in his area at that time. He quite vehemently accepts it by coming to the ring getting right in his face before being separated by security.
1: We're told it's time for the first ever battle between Super Bowl champions. Mongo gets the horseman theme, and he brings a briefcase out with him. The ring announcer calls Deborah the self-proclaimed queen of the WCW. Seriously, man. At least remove the the when you say it. (laughs) Right? Mongo tells the camera that White's going to meet someone from Chicago and he better be ready for some pain. Some guys in the crowd bear their chest, uh, football fan style, showing Roman numeral fours on them and make the horseman sign. Reggie White comes out in a Green Bay Packers colors football jersey, though it has WCW written on it, and football shorts. White, playing for the 1997 Super Bowl champion Packers, actually set a record with three sacks in that year's game. Huh. Heenan tells us the man accompanying White is a strength coach, but neglects to give his name, which I looked up. It's Kent Johnson. Okay. White flings Mongo to the corner, but Mongo outwrestles him. Twice, they charge into each other and nobody moves. But on a third, Mongo waggles his finger, but then collapses. <laughs> okay, that was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Mongo draws a line of scrimmage to challenge White to Curtis's evident excitement. When, when Mongo won't line up at first, Curtis actually is like, no, come on, man. you gotta, We got to see this. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like he's trying to rough a football <laughs> game, not a, not a wrestling match. Oh, geez. They charge and Mongo goes low to hit the knee. White challenges Mongo again, and Mongo cheekily makes White promise that they won't go for the legs. White leapfrogs Mongo and clotheslines him outside a bit awkwardly. Mongo tries to leave with Deborah, but they're stopped by White's teammate, Gilbert Brown, number 93 to White's number 92. Mongo swings his briefcase, but Brown ducks and easily carries Mongo on his shoulders back to the ring, where White hits a beautiful drop kick for two. I think you pointed out on the show when we were watching it, like, he even does the neat, like, rotation of it, even.
0: Yeah, no, I thought it was, was surprising that you dropped from honestly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A Mongo chant starts, but is very quickly drowned out by a Reggie chant. Mongo works the arm and shouts... <laughs> Go ahead. Jesus may have your soul, but I've got your <a-> <laughs> <laughs> White knocks him through the ropes, and Brown stops another attempt to flee. White works a headlock, but Mongo makes the ropes, then clips his knee on the break. Heenan asks, is that a 10-yard penalty? (laughs) Mongo works the knee, earning two off an ankle lock when White's shoulders slump. Side slam by Mongo, but White dodges a leg drop and hits a cross body for two, then puts on a nerve hold. Mongo actually starts praying (laughs) and promises that he's going to go to church, but then he boots White in the balls. I think I hear the church bells ringing now, Mongo yells. (laughs) Mongo earns three two-counts off another ankle lock and tries the figure four leg lock, but White kicks him to send him through the ropes. The commentators sound weirdly surprised that Mongo, a horseman, would try the horseman's favorite hold. Yeah. They're they're oddly thrown by this. That's true, yeah. Flare Karma strikes Mongo. White hits clotheslines and an inverted atomic drop. Outside, White reverses a whip to send Mongo into the barricade. Back in, White reverses a Mongo suplex into his own, and Heenan declares him the next world champion. (laughs) White hits a cool, bouncing splash for zero, as Deborah distracts Curtis by acting like she hurt her ankle. Nice guy Reggie White goes over to help her. Mongo gets his briefcase, but Brown grabs it. Mongo six Curtis on Brown, and Jeff Jarrett sprints down and throws Mongo a second briefcase to smack White in the back for the three count and the win. Brown runs in with the other briefcase to go for Mongo, but he rolls outside. Mongo, Jarrett, and Deborah celebrate, and Deborah sarcastically thanks White for helping her with her ankle. Mongo says White could never stand up to a monster on the midway, that's the nickname for the Chicago Bears, the team Mongo played for. Yes, particularly for their nineteen forty, nineteen forty-one, and nineteen eighty-five versions. The last being when Mongo was on the team for their Super Bowl victory. Thoughts on this one?
0: This is a tricky one to rate because, on its surface, it's there's not a lot of action here as a whole. Mm-hmm. Or at least not a lot of diversity of action. There's a lot of set up a move, stall a bit, then do a move, stall some more. Trash talk a bit to the camera, which admittedly is pretty funny. Yes, Marcus Trash Talk is good. He is loving this match. <laughs> yes, his his joy is is hard to ignore. To be fair, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beyond yeah, technical level, it's not great. Um, There's that one clothesline line that is off time because by I think by combination of things, I don't think it's really Roger Richard White doing the clothesline line wrong. I think it was a positioning thing.
1: I think it's positioning and I think Mongo still has his arm raised or something, so he like gets caught in the armpit instead. Yeah. Which makes it look a little weird.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that it, obviously if Reggie White had wrestled more than one match, you know, you get these sort of things out of the way. As it is, it's something that they clearly practiced this. There's no real improvisations here. For the most part it feels planned out like Hogan Warrior style where it's mm-hmm. like this thing is to the T, this whole thing has to happen. To clarify
1: Hogan Warrior one. Yes. Not correct. the disaster piece that is Hogan Warrior 2.
0: <laughs> correct, yes. <laughs> so if you're taking this as like a pure wrestling thing, it's not great. Like I said, the, the clothes is clothesline. The dropkick is pretty good, but yeah, this the pacing is off a bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: At least some of the filler is good, like Mago trying to leave and being carried back is pretty funny. Yes. There's some good stuff too here. It's not like it's all really bad. The trade-off, though, is that the crowd is like, monstrously into this match yes like everything is happening they are in it to win it even if it's correct it's hard to be like oh this isn't very good to this match because everyone seems to be enjoying it
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's kind of like watching a bad movie with other people this to a certain degree it's so in this case they actually don't think it's a bad movie yes <laughs> yeah it's tricky it's definitely too long for sure You gives you turn five minutes from this i think and get the same result and I think as creatively done as the finish is, like, the fact that they have two briefcases uh, is a little silly.
1: Yeah, I don't know why you couldn't have just brought a different weapon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, the other thing that strikes me as kind of funny is so... one thing, I don't know why the ref and then Reggie has to sort of stand there for a minute or two, checking on Deborah, who stood up and nothing happened, but she did act like her, her ankle hurt. Just climbing on there made her,
1: made her break her ankle, apparently. Well, she twisted it in climbing that, you know? I guess it's the idea.
0: Um, but so he then takes the shot to the middle of his back with the metal briefcase and then collapses unconscious? Yeah.
1: That's where that's where your uh, brain is, right? In the middle of your back?
0: I, I don't think so.
1: You get a concussion it's, just from being hit there, yeah.
0: In that case, poor Riva got several concussions oh my gosh, from this yeah. match. <laughs> he got CT from this match alone. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things, again, it's, If Reggie White was a more polished-trained wrestler, he would know how to sort of sell the, oh, I'm hurt from this thing, better than just the, oh, I'm mentally unconscious thing. Yes. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's kind of a forgotten WCW spectacle. Um, You could definitely trim it
1: down, but it's hard not to enjoy because everyone else is enjoying it. Yeah, this was far, far more fun than it should have been. (laughs) There's barely anything to it as far as the action goes. It's a bunch of the most basic wrestling you will ever see interspersed with lengthy pauses. But both guys are so into it that their enthusiasm is infectious. Yeah. Mongo in particular relishes playing either a cartoon supervillain or a high school bully. I'm not sure which. Probably both. (laughs) Yeah. White did a great job with the moves that he could do. That dropkick in particular is absolutely beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. It felt like they kept within what they could do, had a ton of character, and like you pointed out, they got the crowd really into this. So despite a slow pace, a lot of repetition, and minimal complexity, it ended up tremendously fun to watch. I loved it, and I guess it goes to show how much it matters that the performers are enjoying something.
0: In this case, this is actually the only match Ridge White ever wrestled. Was kind of interesting, you thought they might have brought back for more, but they didn't. I don't know
1: if it was a scheduling issue or what, but he- it's weird, because he seems so into doing it. Yeah, considering how well he does, I actually would not have been surprised to see him come back.
0: Yeah. However, there is some follow-through on another story, though. Okay. Kevin Green um, is finally coming for his revenge against Mongo from last year. Yes. <laughs> and immediately following where he's teamed up with Ric Flair for The <laughs> yes.
1: and who Mongo is also part of. Yeah, let's make this clear. So, so the storyline last year that we were seeing at Bree '96 was that Mongo was being challenged by Ric Flair, and he brought in Kevin Green to be his backup, so they get up a tag match between Flair and Anderson and Mongo and Green. Correct. And that whole storyline resolves with I forget if it's Woman or Miss Elizabeth or somebody brings out a large briefcase with a Four Horsemen t-shirt and loads of money yeah. in it, and hands it to Mongo during that match, and he's like well, don't mind if I do, takes the briefcase, smashes Green with it, and lets Flair and Anderson uh, beat Green, mm-hmm. despite Green only being there to support him <laughs> against Flair and Anderson. So yep. kind of a dick move. <laughs> 100% dick move, yes. but uh, So that's where Mongo joins the Four Horsemen and never looks back. Now Green is coming back, which we'll get to in a moment, but Green is now coming back to join Ric Flair who made his friend turn on him with a boatload of cash mm-hmm. <laughs> against the NWO and appears to have no concerns about this whatsoever. No. Even though he's clearly still mad enough at Mongo to want to face him the next month. Correct. I guess he's just kind of a well that's just what Ric Flair does. How can you how can you be mad at it? yeah you can't be mad at a trickster god for playing a trick. <laughs> well this, this show is all about tradition, I guess Ric Flair betraying you as tradition. That is traditional. That is very traditional. <laughs> we go back to the ring again for our final match. That's the NWO Wolf Pack, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Six versus WCW's Rick Flair, Roddy Piper, and Kevin Green in a no disqualification, six man tag match. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So obviously
0: we're about a year out from the NWO forming, famously at Bash Street 1996. Yes. Um, so we're deep in the heart of this whole thing. The only issue is that we're in kind of a weird spot storyline-wise, because obviously we've begun the build-up towards the inevitable and definitely not disappointing in 1997 match between Sting and Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. So we're, that's all that really matters as far as the NWO overall story. That's why we have a six-man tag match in which the individual side all hold titles but aren't defending them tonight, which is kind of a disappointment. And we have the team of traditionalists, Flair and Piper and, somebody and Kevin Green, phasing <laughs> uh, off against them.
1: Kevin Green is, I guess, doing a traditional Slambury guest appearance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's just tradition.
1: Michael Buffer introduces this as the super match of the evening. And... A Battle of Pride and Glory. Let's get ready to rumble. All right. The NWO guys are out first. NWO theme count, two. <laughs> Six is 220 pounds of disrespect, and Hall and Nash are the founding fathers of the NWO. The WCW team comes out separately. First is Kevin Green to drums, and in Carolina Panthers jacket and colors. Interestingly, he's number 91, So between him, Reggie White, and Gilbert Brown, we have 91, 92, and 93, even though Green's from another team. That is interesting. Interesting coincidence, huh? Yeah, it is. Piper has his usual nice bagpipe music, and Flair, of course, has his usual theme and comes out in a bright pink robe with flowers. (laughs) Someone in the crowd shows off their Flair-themed license plate. I hope no cops were checking the cars in the lot right then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tony oddly seems to claim that when Flair beat Vader at Starcade 93, Vader was never to be seen from again. But Vader was definitely in WCW through 1994 and most of 1995. Yes. I, I might be misinterpreting what he's trying to get at there, but he says like Flair came back a couple years ago to beat a big man who was never seen again in wrestling.
0: He's simply referencing Stark connect 93, yeah. He seems like he's referencing 93, yeah. So, I don't know, it was weird. I don't know what else it also could be, yeah. Now, the thing is, obviously, Vader at this point is in WWF. Yeah. So, then bad-melting him is not surprising. But them forgetting two years of his history is. <laughs> yes. He, he in fact, was in the original intro to Nitro, but then was fired uh, before the WarGames match that Nitro ended up to.
1: Yes. A fun audience note, there's this kid in the front row who's been sitting there sullenly, not reacting to anything for the entire show. And I remember asking you if you thought his dad dragged him to the show or something. Mm-hmm. But for this match, he stands up there and is watching in trance. This is what he was here to see. <laughs> Flair and Six start. Six hits shoulder blocks and a hip toss and mocks Flair, so Flair chops him flat. Six cradles his chest in pain. Flair beats Six up and mocks Hall with some dancing. Hall (laughs) angrily foot shuffles, then charges and gets decked. Flair chops Six, Hall, and Nash. Jump your ass on some tradition, bellows Dusty. (laughs) (laughs) Nash wants the tag, but Hall convinces him to let him go instead. Hall and Flair make tremendous faces at each other. (laughs) but flair turns around and tags green who does a football workout (laughs) hall spits on green and tags nash for kevin versus kevin oh yeah yeah it didn't occur to me until i was writing the show notes oddly enough (laughs) kevin does this and then kevin does that nash lands knee strikes and elbows but green hits a flying shoulder block leaping clothesline and slam to send him rolling outside Green considers a dive, but Hall and Six run at him, so he double-clotheslines them instead, which I'm sure relieved the Carolina Panthers. (laughs) Yeah, Green mocks Hall's NWO taunts. Hall in without tagging, and he demands Piper. Hall marches around piping, but has the wrong kind of pipes. (laughs) Yeah. Hall gets Piper in the NWO corner, but Piper fights off all three. Piper neckbreaker, But Nash distracts Anderson, and Six kicks Piper in the advantaged hip. Six and Hall work the leg, and Hall mocks Flair with a figure four attempt, but Piper boots him away. True to the horseman figure four style tonight, at least. (laughs) Have you noticed that? Like, every single one of them has been countered with a kick. Oh yeah, that's true. (laughs) Piper dives and tags Flair. Flair runs wild, but Hall pokes him in the eyes, then whips him to the turnbuckle. Flair flips over it, runs along the apron, and jumps off the top turnbuckle, but Hall catches him for a fallaway slam. Nice spot. It was, yeah. Everybody fights outside, but Nash flings Flair back in for Hall to get two and a half with his feet on the ropes. Nash, Hall, and Six wear Flair down, including Six's dumbest move, the Bronco Buster. Yes. For those who are not familiar with that, that's where you jump at a person who's sitting down in the corner and land with your crotch in his face and bounce up and down wildly and somehow that's supposed to hurt them and not badly hurt you yes (laughs) correct the crowd chants something homophobic
0: oh yeah they do i forgot that part
1: yeah six awkwardly runs into flare off a whip and just falls down i'm guessing that might have been a mistimed move Mm -hmm. hall decks flare for two for six and a six kind of back elbow gets another two Come on, Rick, Green says, cheering for the man who paid his best buddy to betray him less than a year ago. (laughs) Tags to Piper and Hall, but Anderson didn't see Piper's tag and stops him, so Piper decks him, too. No DQs, so hey. Six-man brawl. Everybody out but Hall and Flair, and Nick Patrick comes down to ringside. Hall tries the outsider's edge and beckons Patrick in. Patrick had been the NWO referee before this point, as I recall.
0: Yes, correct.
1: But Flair escapes with a double-leg takedown and locks on the figure four. Green stops Nash and Six from interfering, and Piper locks a sleeper on Nash. Even as he fades, Nash keeps trying to reach for Flair until he finally passes out with a fistful of Flair's hair. Hall passes out in the figure four, and Patrick hesitates, but finally delivers the three-count for the win for Flair, Piper, and Green. The WCW team celebrates as the commentators discuss Patrick's evident reinstatement as a referee. Green gives Flair a hug. Very forgiving man, Kevin Green. Yeah. Speaking of the NWO, Tony asks when they wake up if someone could let them know that tradition does not bite. (laughs) Dusty loves it. (laughs) NWO no more, Green yells. Great shot of... Flair, Green, and Piper posing side by side on stage. Thoughts on this one?
0: For me, this felt like a really big, fun house show match. <laughs> like I said before, there's a weird point in the storyline where they're obviously not gonna end the NWO in a random six man match, not featuring not featuring, you know, Hogan or Savage. Right. So there's not necessarily stakes to this, but they really played the crowd quite well through this match. Yes. They pace in and out really well, where they keep the freshmen in, and then they you know get Piper down for quite a bit of time. Flair does his chance at it. I think Green's the only that it doesn't have a face in peril at any major point, isn't
1: it? Right. Match. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Flair and Piper both definitely take their segments, and Green, I, I, it's understandable. He's nowhere near experienced enough to, I think, manage a segment like that. No, yeah, it's perfectly understandable.
0: But yeah, like the previous match, this is one of the ones where the crowd just, everything, is gets a big reaction. Mm-hmm. Something that they do pretty well, like, they set up that earlier, um, in the build-up to this, they had attacked Piper again. So Piper is some combination of legit injured and kayfabe injured. I'm not clear what the percentage
1: is which. Yeah, his, his uh, legs all bandaged up.
0: Yeah. So they keep him out of the match for quite a long time. Flair and Green take a big chunk of the match early on, but then when he comes in, he gets to look strong. So the rest of the expectation, you think he's gonna come in and get taken out because he's he's arguably the weakest one with the injury, but then... He looks strong until they double team him. So that was a nice sort of messing with what you, what you expect to happen there. Mm, absolutely, yeah. This is the point where Piper can't do a whole lot, but the thing is okay in a six man match where he can do his punches and you know do his dancing and stuff. Not a one one match, so he's in and out. This is a good use of him.
1: This is exactly the way to use someone who is in that situation. That's still a big star that you want to get reactions from, but you know you can't put him in a in a one on one match. So, of course, it's bookended by multiple Piper versus Hogan one-on-one matches. Yes. But yeah, this is exactly how they should use Piper. Yeah. He works perfectly here.
0: Mm-hmm. It's also interesting, too, that this is Ric Flair's return after, I think, it's eight months out of action. I get that he comes back for the main event of a show, but it's kind of weird that he's not coming back to, like, fight Savage or fight Hogan for the title. He's here for the six-man match, which is important for, like, Pride and all that, but... Again, otherwise it has no stakes to it. Yeah. It's interesting on their end to use him like that. I thought Green really did well in this match, too. He did, yeah. They typically give him the right amount of stuff to do. He gets to come in to look strong and knock people around. I don't think there's really a point where he looks like he's ever lost at any point. Because they, they just sort of pull him in
1: and out there. Mm-hmm. If they kept him in and long time into the match, I think it might be a problem. Well, and he does a good job even when he's standing on the apron or something of, I mean, I joked about it, but he really does a good job of like calling out to Rick when he's in trouble and, and acting like a teammate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I get the feeling that he was just like, I'm standing on the sidelines here. I'll just call out like I would if I were on the sidelines at a football game. Yeah. And it it works.
0: <laughs> Actually, it funny. It feels a lot. We <laughs> were joking about, you know, Rick Flair betrayals and all of that. And this how funny is green team with them, but... That does feel a bit like the the Halloween Havoc ninety five. Yes, where
1: Come on, Stinger. Yeah. Nature boy. They're
0: like <laughs> yeah. It's like they haven't seen each other in years and like fighting to get back to each other. Walk tall.
1: In th- walk tall, Stinger. <laughs> yeah. Then instant betrayal by Flair. <laughs> yeah. Like two seconds. Yes. If if this had ended with Flair tagging Green and Green just decking him, that would have been absolute gold. Yeah. <laughs> that
0: would have been great. Yeah, overall, it was a, it was a fun match. Um, I thought Green looked nice. Piper was using good small doses. Flair is obviously the sort of main aspect of this match, mm-hmm. which is a credit to him, but he's come back from being out for a long
1: time from injury, and he's able to hold his own hero well. Yeah, and he's loving it the entire time, you can oh, tell, yeah. too. He's, he's glad to be back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought this was chaotic, but really fun. It doesn't make a ton of sense for this to be no DQ, but still obey tag rules, but I'm glad it did. It was easier to follow that way, despite the general chaos. Mm -hmm. It's had a ton of really big personalities. We've got Nash, Hall, Flair, and Piper, in particular, playing off each other really well, with Hall and Flair taking the cake and just constantly at each other. Yes. Six and Green were no slouches either, though. We got nice kicks and arrogance from Six. And some crazy, thunderous velocity on Green's strikes. Yeah. Green could not do many things, but what he did, he did very, very well. And they used him exactly the right way here, even if it is, as we've repeatedly said, weird to see him willingly team with the guy who turned his friend evil. Yes. I I do have to say, it did not look very fun to take his strikes. No. He repeatedly like just hurled his entire body at people, basically. Yeah. That double close
0: especially, yeah.
1: Poor poor Six gets caught with a lot of the time, and I I think he was not having a very fun night. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, there's a great hit near the end of the match. Uh, you lose track of where Six and Kevin Green are for a bit, because they go <laughs> the outside of the ring. And then suddenly, Green is in front of the hard camera on the bottom side, just double-choking Six with both hands, <laughs> and walking with him like, Whoa, where'd that, that come from? <laughs> yes
1: i forgot that part yeah
0: he just appears in a frame like that it's like oh my gosh man you're actually trying to murder him (laughs) taking taking this very seriously apparently
1: yep yeah yeah all credit to him he was down for everything they asked him to do and just really threw himself into everything oh yeah quite literally (laughs) overall this was a great spectacle to close out the night
0: uh, the Great American Bash, there would be a tag and title match, but as mentioned, it is not the Thunder Brothers challenging for the tag titles. It's actually the team of Ric Flair and Roddy Piper.
1: Okay. I could see that still working pretty well, honestly.
0: Yeah. And so at least this is building up towards that, the head end now. Right. Interestingly, the pair would also would later challenge the tag titles in WWF at that point in the WWE, almost 10 years later, 2006.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: They were tag teams together in 2006. That's interesting. I in the time right. They beat the Spirit Squad for him. <laughs> so it's funny, in 1997, together, a different company also challenged the titles. Okay. As for Six, he would lose his Cruiserweight title not on pay-per-view, which I'm mentioning here. He would lose on a very interesting show. It was Saturday Nitro.
1: Oh, right. I forgot they did that the one time.
0: Yeah. They filmed the house show because it had a title change where he lose the title to Chris Jericho. And they ran on TV like a special. Okay. Though by his absent is Hulk Hogan, who would not have a title match pay-per-view until Road Wild. Officially, I think he appears on TV bits and pieces here and there in the next coming months, but he's not on the bash, and then he's wrestling the famous tag match he has with Dennis Rodman this year at Bash of the Beach. Okay. The next time you see him actually in a title match defending it or otherwise is a couple months from now, which is kind of like, oh. Yeah. A champion of his company. <laughs> now, he actually does have a title match shortly before Road Wild. Correct.
1: Where he faces Luger.
0: But yeah, as far as pay-per-view appearances, I was focusing on that, but yeah.
1: We unceremoniously go straight to the credits. <laughs> and Slamboree 97 is done. So overall thoughts on Slamboree 97? So as I
0: mentioned a couple of times here and there, I think the only problem with this show is there's really not much in the way of stakes. Obviously, you have a couple time matches here and there, and you have what are designed to feel like these big encounters, like the Reggie White, Mongo match, and the Six Man Tag match at the end. At night, like they're unimportant. It's just like if you were 1997 watching these shows and you missed Slam you really would miss some really good matches and fun moments. But the overall story, for the most part, doesn't change that much. Mm. It's a good show, but it's we're at the point when there's what 12, 13 pay per views getting to that point. I think now. Mm-hmm. They have a point where they have a champion that's booked to work what six six to eight of those a year, so you got to stick on your feet with how you work these things. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So you don't get into something like you would expect, like Ric Flair coming back from his you know six to eight months out injured to challenge for the title from say Hogan,
1: or to be in like a number one contenders match at least or something. Yeah,
0: honestly, every match I've really liked. So this hasn't been like a bad one. So I definitely recommend the show as a whole. It's just. If you're going for, like, the overall stories, the NBO, for instance,
1: this is kind of a stopgap, but nothing that important. But it's fun to watch, though. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. So much so that I honestly feel like I need to rewatch it in a month or two when I have some distance from last month's newsfest to make sure I'm not just giving this extra credit for not being Slampery 96.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I can see that.
1: For now, though, We had a collection of very fun matches performed by guys at the top of their game with a seriously enthusiastic crowd during perhaps WCW's hottest period. Only Glacier versus Mortis was maybe a little underwhelming just because they didn't give us an actual match before breaking it all down. Correct. And even that had some seriously impressive kicks from Ernest Miller. And I'll fully admit that I thought I would loathe the match between Mongo and Reggie White as it involved a guy that's not a great wrestler and a guy who's not a wrestler. Yeah. But this show made even that a treat to watch. Yeah. If there's a flaw, it's that there's minimal promo content. Yeah, it's true. Though the bit with DDP and Savage is nicely done, there's nothing that actually ties in with the matches on this show. Yeah. In particular, I would have liked to hear from the teams for the main event. Uh, Flair, Piper, Green, Mega Promo would have been really fun. Oh, yeah. And with how on Mongo was tonight too. I bet we could have gotten an entertainingly strange promo from him as well.
0: <laughs> oh, we have been really good too, yeah.
1: It might also have helped to make a bit more sense of the Mongo Deborah Jarrett situation to have someone talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, though. I felt like this was a fairly consequential night. Okay. We see Dragon split from Sonny Ono. Mm-hmm. Regal wins Dragon's title. Ernest Miller debuts. There's a partial breakup of the Dungeon of Doom. There's developments in Mongo and Jeff Jarrett's storyline, Flair returns to the ring, and there's signs that WCW can now put up something approaching a united front to challenge the NWO's dominance. The limited non-match content makes it feel like a smaller show than I think it really should be when you actually look at what happens on it. I see that, yeah. I recognize that in terms of titles, there's not a ton of movement. There's just kind of one that actually moves there. But in terms of the broad strokes of everything that happens on the show, there's actually quite a bit.
0: Yeah. But like, this like like I mentioned before, the the match with Stars could have been a number of match, right? Same as the match with Rey Mysterio and Yuji could have been. A-
1: There's absolutely ways that they could have made it bigger.
0: Yeah, I will agree with you that thing. Yeah, if you look at it overall, I think good stuff happens. Um, my point was more in terms of the WWE vs NBO aspect. But no, yeah, absolutely. I totally see that.
1: Yeah, commentary as ever with this particular team was a lot of fun. Mike Tenay even seemed to do a better job of joining in with their personalities this time for his two matches. He's always great with facts and figures, but this time he seemed comfortable working with the jokes and atmosphere, and even had some really good comebacks after Heenan jabs. Yeah. This was a very nice, developed Mike Tenay, where last year, he just kept trying to plow forward with facts and figures while Heenan was jabbing at him, where on this one, it was like, no, he's just willing to get in there and give as good as he got. <laughs> yeah. Production was largely good, but there are some fairly important missed shots, like Yasubarioka's outside dive and Meng's takedown of Benoit, and an occasional bit of missing sound. It's not a ton, though. It's just enough that it does hurt the show slightly. An awkward spot here and there, and some more limited than desired story content aside, this was a really fun show to watch. And with the caveat that I may be overappreciative of it due to how much I disliked the prior year, I think it's a pretty easy recommendation.
0: For me, say, yeah, this has a feel of a really big, fun house show, which isn't necessarily an insult.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think how to put it. It's like house show in, in terms of the presentation, but in terms of the actual match quality, it's like it's pay-per-view. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a weird combo. There's not a lot of flash or glamour or anything to it, but you are getting 100% pay-per-view quality matches.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know we didn't mention yet in um, the matches is the first official appearance of one of our favorite things at WCW that finally showed up, the Step.
1: Yes. Yes, we have the Step for Jackie Crockett normally. Yes. As I recall, as the cameraman that normally use it on the ringside. Yeah. And you, you've you been looking for this step for think,
0: the, the whole part of the series. show. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. All in the series. Yes. Yeah. So, just a brief uh, bit of background. Before we started doing this as, as a show, Bob and I would watch the shows together in the same form we watched, you know, Halloween Havoc through and so on and so forth. And we started to notice that they had a, basically a little platform at the corner on the front side of the ring where Jackie Crockett, who was a, was a larger man, yes. would often stand. Oh, this is like a private place to get the one shot they would use. So then when we started the show, we're like, oh, we should mention this, mention this, this random stuff they put there. Obviously, early on is before they did that. And we kept waiting for it and waiting for it. And then we would never quite get it. Like even shows around the area, we, like the rings had to be different, it wouldn't be there. And it's like, yep. finally, it's actually there. It's like seeing Bigfoot. Yes. You know it's there somewhere, but now you finally got it on film.
1: And isn't it, actually? It's a different cameraman that uses the step that, time. That's even. the thing,
0: yeah. Jackie Crockett's
1: normally standing there, but then it's some the other guy. So we don't yet have Jackie Crockett standing on Jackie Crockett's step. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah.
1: <laughs> have to keep an eye out for that.
0: Hopefully, 98 will give us that, yes.
1: Time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, what is your match of the night? That's a tricky one.
0: Thankfully, it's one of the one where are tricky because they're all quite good, honestly. Yes, yes, yeah. As I said I think Glacier and Mortis doesn't really get to go anywhere in a short
1: run time. It's a strong show. You could make a strong argument for eight of these nine matches being your match of the night. Yeah, honestly.
0: Um, yeah, so really have to get picky with things then. I think for me, the thing is, is matches that have the stakes to them have have importance like in the long term. Mm-hmm. So I think that comes down to the two title matches, the Regal Dragon match, the Jarrett Malenko match, and the NWO versus Piper, Flair, and Green match. Okay. Uh, it's a really tricky inside this one. It, I th- it is, is? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a good problem to have. Uh-huh. Um, I think for all our presentation, I'm probably going to go with... Hmm. do torn between two now. Flip a coin on it or something. Um, <laughs> I think I'll, I will go with the Jarrett Malenko match. Okay. I think for me... That had the good combination of the technical wrestling, which we both like. Pacing is nice. Their storyline worked throughout without being to the point where it was overly complicated and screwy. Mm-hmm. It was the, the least screwy of the WCW screwy matches we've had in quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The condition you have to attach to these things. Jarrett really brought the character aspect, which I thought did well. And Malenko obviously just maintained his, his normal good quality.
1: Malenko is Dean Malenko. <laughs> exactly. That is the highest compliment you can give.
0: <laughs> Correct. <laughs> his transitions and his escape from holes know, was really good throughout the whole thing.
1: Yep. All right, for me, it was between the same three. Yep. I had Dragon versus Regal, Malenko versus Jarrett, and the six-man tag. I did actually, I will note, also briefly consider as a dark horse the Mongo versus Reggie White match. I can see that. These ones were just so good, I couldn't see... Picking that one. Sure. On, on a lesser show, that one would have made it just on the sheer character. Yeah. I'm going to go with the six-man tag. Okay. As great as the Dragon versus Regal and Malenko versus Jarrett are, and they are great, the raw spectacle of that final match is outstanding, and the participants played their parts to perfection, with the exception of the Bronco Buster, of course. Yes. It's a brilliant way to end the night, and Flair and Hall in particular are absolute joys to watch during it.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. MVP? Uh, so I think I'll go with my usual route of trying to go outside of the match I picked for match of the night. Okay. Give someone a shout out there. Going quickly through people that deserve it. Obviously, Regal and Dragon both liver quite well. I could see them being picked. Abisteria uh, is a great showing against um, Yasiroka. That was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ming surprised me a bit, really delivering in that sort of mad, dangerous beast mode he can go for. And obviously, there's the surprise of Reggie White doing what he could do, and Mongo really playing up his character aspect quite well.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm picking someone outside of that, though. and I I feel like we're probably going to go into similar themes here. I'm curious how this works out. Okay. So, in the six-man match, you have Kevin Nash, big-time experienced wrestler. Scott Hall, big-time experienced wrestler. Six, arguably... As as experienced them maybe to a lesser degree, but to the match experience, he's got it there. Mm-hmm. Flair is obviously unmatched in all this stuff. Piper has his own thing. So in a lesser world, Kevin Green would be the weak link. But I think he, I think it might be peak because he actually delivered when he really had to. All right. I yeah, I mean rewatching especially, I really enjoyed his energy.
1: Absolutely. Just just like last year, he he kind of came in ready to do what they wanted him to do yeah like i'm coming on the show i'm gonna do this right exactly you know i'm not just gonna take a paycheck and sit around and relax i'm gonna really throw myself into it yeah i can see that for sure
0: yeah it's because he managed to shine with the other people in that match is why i pick him
1: mm-hmm. i am going a little bit more traditional actually with mine Oh, okay so i'm actually gonna go with dean malenko okay he was just so impressive
0: oh he, he, yeah for sure
1: There's no one in the business as smooth, creative, and graceful in the ring as Dean Malenko. And tonight, he showed that with another standout performance that just mesmerized. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, Jarrett was also at the top of his game tonight. Of course. But Malenko, I would say, is the pinnacle of professional wrestling performance. And he's allowed to fully show what he can do in this match. I agree. I do have an honorable mention. Of course. And that is Mongo McMichael.
0: Okay, I figured that.
1: I really, really enjoyed his wildly over-the-top performance tonight. It was tons of fun to watch. Yeah. And it made a match that could have been overly simplistic into a real treat. And yes, I do also have to say huge props for Kevin Green and for Reggie White, for both of them really coming willing to do what they needed to do to make their parts of the show great. Yeah. And that wraps up our review of Slambury 97. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details and share your own thoughts about the Slamborees as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show... Give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Slamboree98. The Strong Survive, The Ruthless Win. But do the Ruthless also survive, or is it kind of a Pyrrhic victory? I guess we'll have to watch and see. Yeah, find out next time. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgeon signing off. Good night, everybody. Yeah, happy wrestling. Meng lands blow after blow to land Benoit... Uh, sorry. Meng... Meng... La- ah, blah, blah, blah.